0: Happy Wednesday, happy off Wednesday, usually our off Wednesday, but if you're listening to this on the day it's dropping, it's not off Wednesday, surprise, we are back for volume three, mm-hmm. not four, like I'm pretty sure I say in the intro you're going to hear in a minute, this but, is volume three. But uh, we do have that. <laughs>
1: three people, so really we can call it volume like five.
0: Yes, we record i'm sorry in advance if long episodes are not your thing because this is a big boy <laughs> like it's maybe our longest episode we have ever done yes it may we did not go be. to bed till almost midnight um terrible decisions were made on our part but you know and what we have still got really up for discussion. the gym like a good yes, i got up
1: good soul i did not i slept in 4 45
0: the morning after it was no. awful it was like literally the hardest workout i think i've ever done in my life i almost died I slept Um, (laughs) and
1: I woke up at 730 and I was like, shit, I got to get ready because I got to leave in 45 minutes.
0: I was well awake, but you're not here to listen to us complain about lack of sleep that we suffer (laughs) to bring you these episodes. We slave (laughs)
1: over our sleep schedule for your entertainment.
0: We do. We sacrifice so many hours sleep. That's a lie. Like we try to wrap up recording on most nights by 9 30 um but it doesn't always work because our friends over at three films and a podcast are on the west coast and time zones do exist so sometimes we got to stay up late that's okay and it was well worth it this was a very good discussion very long discussion but we had some heavy hitter albums Mm -hmm. we talk about rumors we talk about blood on the tracks we talk about carol king's tapestry we talk about to pimp a butterfly and then, you know, we talk about Exile on Main Street. It's probably the weakest of the five. And it's I can there. Say that. Because I covered it. So I mean he's sitting there. It's there. Um just just keep listening for the full thoughts. You'll you'll see why.
1: Oh, that one I heard.
0: Motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that should be the end of it. Um, so welcome to volume three. I'm Leah. I'm Bethann. And this is Raku.
1: Where are they getting a dub in a CPS executive meeting? No. <laughs> bitch, don't touch my thermostat. <laughs> the ghost be like, pull up before I haul
0: you, let me turn down the thermostat. Who <laughs> is
1: this man?
0: We're on page one, guys. <laughs> this is Shiwaraqi. We are here for volume three. Somehow, we've made it three volumes of this, of our 500 Greatest Album series. And this one is super exciting because we're doing it with our good friends. Three films in a podcast. How are you guys doing tonight?
2: It's going on? Doing Wonderful.
3: Awesome.
2: Very excited Beautiful. to be here. I
0: always still want to say six seasons in a movie, and <laughs> that's <Yep>. not right. <laughs> that's perfect. <though. laughs> that's
3: what
2: we're shooting for. Three films in a podcast. But I really like it.
3: I like that Abed tie-in. I'm rewatching <laughs> yes. Community again right now as we speak. So
1: we just it's... watched a. Vid- me and Josh just watched a video this morning about a guy ranking all the Community episodes. And he put the Dungeons and Dragons episode over the timeline episode.
4: Ooh. no!
0: Dungeons and Dragons is number one. Dungeons and Dragons I, is a I very like good
1: episode, a great yeah. episode. Mm-hmm. But the timeline yeah. episode is probably one of the most well-written episodes of TV. So good. Yeah. True. Plus mm-hmm. the great
2: meme, True. the fire. You know what I mean? So good. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. Still
1: holds up. Literally, yeah. what we live every day.
3: <laughs> mm-hmm. The evil mustaches and everything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
2: We are Troy every morning. Like, what is going on?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Every single day. (laughs) Um, So our listeners who don't know you, uh, take a second and introduce yourselves. Tell us about your show.
3: Uh, Uh, Ben, why don't you do that?
2: Okay. Uh, My name's Ben, um, and we do three films on a podcast with Tyler and Matt. We are three friends and the conceit, I guess, of the podcast is we're just trying to watch new stuff. Uh, As you just heard Tyler talk about, we fall victim to re-watching the same TV shows over and over and over again. Uh, yes. We're like you know what we have like the world's film like at our fingertips like we should watch yeah. different stuff. that's kind of where it came from. So we pick a theme every month uh, and then yeah we each pick a movie that relates to that. We watch it and we talk about it. we've done you guys have come on a couple times mm-hmm. uh, we talked about mm-hmm. Steel Magnolias when we did multiple female leads. Uh, the classic Buddy Holly story. When we did uh, music, the music oh, yeah. round. So, and Beth Ann came on and destroyed our MCU auction draft, which is pretty <laughs> awesome. So I still yeah. want to
1: rematch. <laughs> I Still want to rematch. You
2: got robbed. Yeah, did, you got robbed by
1: one point. That's right.
2: It was so good. So, uh, yeah. So yeah, normally, yeah, we do the the themes, and then yeah, we do some fun stuff like we talked about with the auction draft, or we'll recast a movie, something like that. So just to try to experience some, some new movies.
3: Oh, totally. And so for listeners of she will rock you that don't know us, I'm Tyler. This is my voice right now. Um, the whole point of our podcast is like uh, I guess it's kind of similar to y'all's podcast. Like you're about music exploration and learning more about the stuff you're listening to. Uh, and on the other end of that, we're, we're watching movies and we're trying to explore stuff that we feel like we should have seen already that is out there and is great, or maybe isn't great. I don't know. We've watched a few stinkers on the podcast, but shout uh, out Larry Crown. Yeah. Shout out Larry. Crown. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's been a lot of fun. It's, it's super fun. We have a, what we call our little movie club and uh, it's just, uh, yeah, it's been a really good time. We've got to meet awesome people, such as the wonderful hosts of this podcast here. So uh, thank you for having us on. I'm super excited. Uh,
1: we're, yeah. we're so excited, yeah, to, have
5: we're you excited all. to have you guys. Uh, I'm Matt. Happy to be here. I like to party. Excited to to be here with you guys.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We're gonna party because this is a monster sized episode of five hundred (laughs) albums. We've only ever done this with three people. So this is great. Sorry in advance if you're listening to this and it's two hours long. I mean, we're we're
2: knocking out one percent of the list in one episode. This is this is (laughs) great. I love it.
1: (laughs) This is great road
3: trip episode.
1: That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Don't, if you even don't have a road trip, just get in the car anyway. Drive for <laughs> two hours. Driving. See where you <laughs> end up. <Yeah>. Just drive. <laughs> drive to
0: the halfway <laughs> point and then turn around two and two come back. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Make an adventure out of it. It'll be great. Why not? It'll be fun. So as is tradition on these episodes, we're going to go in list order, but they are on the 2020, it's a 2020 list of mm-hmm. Rolling Stone, 500 Greatest Albums, which means number seven, Rumors Fleetwood Mac is up first.
5: Awesome. So I am, as, as Ben kind of alluded to uh, before we started recording, I'm, I'm gonna do my best to even do this album justice. I think that's what, what we're all more, most concerned about. Um, totally. But just a little like a uh, personal preface to this. Uh, in One of my local radio stations, 103.5 The Arrow, on Saturdays plays three songs in a row of whatever artist that it's playing. And so when I, on Saturdays, when I'd go golfing with my dad, he'd have it on that radio station. He'd kind of like quiz me on what band it was. It started out as sort of a trick because he'd ask me like back to back, like what band it was. And I'd always guess a different band. And he'd be like, oh, no, it's the same band. Classic Steve. Um, <laughs> classic Steve. Um, shout out my dad, Steve. Steve, if you're listening, thank you. Um, apologize for the language. Um, no, but uh, so I... Fleetwood Mac was, it was just like such a regular uh, band to, to be in the circulation on that radio station. Mm -hmm. And so I I became familiar with several of their tracks um, over the years. And it wasn't until a few years later, when like, I was digging through my parents vinyls, I found the album rumors. And I realized that pretty much every single Fleetwood song that I had learned over the years was on that album, on that one Mm -hmm. album. So it was really like the first time it was the first stacked album that I was ever exposed to. Cause I mean, I grew up with the Beatles and like, to me personally, cause I'm a Beatles fan, like all of those albums are stacked. But like, this is the first one where it's like, this is a band I don't like really know, but the songs that I do know are all on this album. All of them are bangers and I just love this album. So that's why I chose it. Um, this album dropped in 1977, same year Star Wars came out. So this is a big year. It's a, a huge year for pop culture. It won album of the year. It was their eleventh studio album. That was a shocker to me. I'm not super familiar with a lot of their earlier stuff, so um, mm-hmm. it, it came behind uh, their self-titled album, which also saw a lot of success. And so this was kind of like a an album to sort of prove that they weren't a fluke uh, with that tenth album, with the success of that tenth album. Um, it did, you know, it was it was critically acclaimed. Many consider it's their magnum opus. Um, but uh, when you get into this album and you, you listen to the backstory, so I listened to your guys's episode of No Doubt and uh, super interesting just to, to hear the relationship dynamics there and, and what artists are willing to work through uh, on a personal level to make a lot of great music and a lot of great art. And I don't think there's an album that accentuates that more than this one mm. where there are relationships going on in the band or broken up relationships in the band. Uh, the, the McVees like had just divorced after eight years. Uh, Buckingham and Stevie Nicks were on again, off again, you know, pretty much hating each other when they weren't recording. That was like the only time they got along. Um, I, I, I believe uh, Mick Fleetwood was having marital issues as well. There's just like so much emotional trauma going on in their personal lives during the recording of this album. And it came at like a huge emotional cost to get this album recorded. And in retrospect, all of them talk about how they recorded their best music when they were at their absolute worst. <laughs> and during the making of this album, it like they ran super expensive sessions. Like they were, they were occupying the studio from sunrise to sundown. Most of it was just partying. And like the last few hours of the day, Would be the recording and that's when they would, you know, do their magic Um, loose. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. Um, But like the even like the lyrics and the music itself doesn't really hold itself back from the emotion that they were all feeling at the time. And they went into the studio to create a pop album. And the pop is it's deceptively poppy because the music and the lyrics are very emotional and raw and angry and uh mm-hmm. that's sort of what made it very significant to a lot of the the critics of it um just how fresh of a thing it was how uh relevant it stayed and is has remained um, over the years and so it uh yeah i mean it's 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 it stayed big i I don't, I don't know i don't know how much more you want me to talk about this without you guys chiming in or <laughs> what, how much i'm supposed to cover
1: good so whatever far whatever you want to
5: cover okay, okay. <laughs> uh, i'm going off of that text that you guys said so um like if i'm if i were to pick like two tracks from this album which is hard to do because seriously if you're not familiar with rumors which i'm assuming i'm assuming if you have any type of uh ears? pop culture savvy yeah, yeah ears, <laughs> you're, <laughs> if you <have> ears. <laughs> you're familiar with uh at least you know a few of these songs um but if I were to pick two just to single out, um, I would start with "Go Your Own Way." Um, nice, principally because that is one of the like that—that's a poppy song. That's that's lyrics are just like so angry. Um, you know, I said it was—it's deceptively poppy. That's that's one that to me it, it kind of encompasses what the band was going through at the time um, musically. And then another song that I would I would put on there. Is the chain, which has found mm. itself in so many great movie moments. You know, we're a movie yeah. podcast. Uh, there's, there's so many, yeah, too many to name. But most recently, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two used it twice, mm.
1: and it's um, a banging scene where they put it in that nice little. Oh, it's incredible. One shot curvature shoot. It's great.
2: So good. It,
5: yeah. it is so good, and it also has a similar. Like I, I put it on here because. It, It sort of has a similar meaning in that movie as it kind of feels like it has for the album because the chain, you know, is about about not breaking up, you know, staying connected. And that's sort of like what it sort of the theme that it was for the for the Guardians. But also some of the members of Fleetwood Mac said that this album allowed them to sort of stay together to continue making music for a while. And so without this without this album, you know, they don't really have that that chain like who knows if they had enough to stick together. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah. And, and also the chain because of the movies that it appears in has kind of made the leap into modern pop culture. Whereas some of these other tracks mm-hmm. have definitely like made their imprint over the last several decades. Um, the chain is probably one of the more recognizable today from yeah. this album because mm-hmm. of, because of its appearance in the movies. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, am Maybe uh, some of you guys will talk about the inf- the specific influences uh, on other artists, but you can find traces of Fleetwood in so many artists today um, they, they really just have like their their songs are frequently covered um, specifically from rumors um, yeah. And you just it's it's pretty ubiquitous. You hear it everywhere. You'll hear it You know, if you're at a bar, you'll hear it in the grocery store You hear this album everywhere um, and I, you know, I had, I meet I was the one of the three of us who had no hesitation in choosing an album for this, even though that list you gave us, was, was great. Like yeah. Ben was saying, like, it's easy to choose an album from that list because they're all great albums. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew that I ha- rumors had to be mine. Um, and one of you guys probably could have done a better job talking about it, but I love this album.
4: Uh, it's it perfect. It,
5: It belongs in my top 10. It's probably in my top five all time. It might be my top one, but uh, definitely earns its place in the top 500. And number seven, you know, it's up there with a lot of great albums. So, you know, I'm I'm happy with that.
3: Yeah. It's hard to quibble once you start to get into even like the top 100, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's so many great albums and especially the top 10. Mm -hmm. Like it's just... I mean it's just you're nitpicking mm-hmm. at that point. They're all top 1 albums, but you have to make an order, right? I'm sure that's something mm-hmm. Beth and uh Beth Ann and Leah that you've run into talking about this. Like how do you I mean everyone's personal attachment to these albums is going right. to make things rank higher or lower, but like my girlfriend and I were just listening to this album recently and it's just the second it starts, it just feels like this is one of the best albums of all time. It's just like mm-hmm. it just Every song on it, like you said, Matt, it, this feels like a, a greatest hits album. And it's not. Mm-hmm. It's just one album. And yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. the story behind it, the electricity and the recording and, and the audio that you hear. There's just something about it that's just that's just sort of unexplainable and timeless. And it's mm-hmm. just you don't know how to explain it, but you know it when you hear it. And this album mm-hmm. has it in spades. Like my favorite, my personal favorite song is Dreams off of the mm-hmm. album. Uh, the ones you mentioned, Matt, are great. Um, But Dreams, like every time I hear it, it's just like, like, woo, like, just, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? It's just like you just start grooving and that the the drum rhythm that that's like staccato drum that they pull and the weird time signature and everything about it. Just I don't know how they did it, but this album is magic. And if 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 the listeners that are listening or if anyone here hasn't seen it, Dave Grohl made a really cool documentary about uh, Sound City, which is the studio they Mm -hmm. recorded this album in. And um, they talk a lot about the recording of this album specifically and just that studio specifically had this weird magic about it that they've tried to replicate um they've like there's just something about the space and the dirt in the in the carpeted walls I don't know what it was about it but they talk at length about it it's really cool and I, I highly recommend that's really it out cool. for sure
1: well, yeah. I mean, they did it in one way, one way only—cocaine. So you know, <laughs> I'm not saying that's That an magic is cocaine. Yes. <laughs> I,
0: think, I think they
3: tried to replicate that too. In fact, they went to such lengths to like perfectly recreate the studio space, and I'm sure mm-hmm. the same drugs were involved. And they like every every musician they interview there. They, I mean, they interviewed Tom Petty. They, like mm-hmm. Tom Petty recorded a lot of his stuff there. Metallica recorded there a ton of like all the bands you've heard of recorded there and it was like a legendary space and they're just like that maybe the ghosts in that in that room for whatever mm. reason just lend itself to incredible recordings well
1: you That's get a awesome. couple divorces in there too that, that'll sure, that. yeah, yeah,
3: get <laughs> the yeah emotional get trauma
2: mm-hmm. there. totally yeah i mean not to reiterate your mm-hmm. point tyler and, and matt but like i i was a kid who was like I would go buy the greatest hits. Cause I'm like, I just want to hear the good stuff, you know, like sure. if I'm buying an album, I just want to hear the best. I, like the concept of the album didn't really make sense to me, I guess, you know, in my youth, but this, like you said, like this plays like a greatest hits. It's like, Oh, mm-hmm. these are all great mm-hmm. songs. That's crazy mm-hmm. that you can like make an album that has all great songs. And I think, you know, some of we are going to talk about today kind of fall into that, but yeah, it's, it's so good. It's a, it's such a, such a wonderful album. It was fun to like, Visited again you know it's like oh yeah this is just knowing all the turmoil behind it but like what what came out of it was awesome yeah,
3: yeah. do you have a favorite song on the album
2: um yeah i mean probably the chain i was gonna leave if yeah. matt didn't pick that so i'm glad he did because <laughs> uh, this would have been really awkward to all of a sudden be gone um but i mean yeah dreams is awesome but i was surprised honestly how much i loved gold dust woman when i re-listened to it it's like yeah oh, song, i was like, gonna say the
3: same thing
2: this is so good like i just yeah i don't know it's really just like pick a pick a track
3: sure one of my biggest complaints about the album is that it's it's both a complaint and something i like about it is it's so short it just yeah. punches yeah, you and, really you're done, and you're done and you just like you want more and i think that's something that a lot of artists could take from, like, I feel like you should always leave your audience wanting more, and I yeah. want mm. so much mm-hmm. more of this album. Um, and I end up just listening to other Fleetwood Mac stuff, but um, yeah, it's like once you get to Gold Dust Woman, it's like we're done, like, this is a <laughs> yeah, moment, <but. laughs> exactly.
4: Play it
0: again, play it again. <laughs>
3: nice,
0: Beth Ann. What's your favorite song on Rumors?
1: kind of controversial because it wasn't on the first run of it but i love mm. silver springs that whole mm. build up because it, it originally got cut from the album and stevie nicks kind of fought mick on it tooth and nail and then on a special release it got added and i think it should have been on the original album one because it'd make it a little longer but two i just love the composition behind it is really mm-hmm. what sticks out to me and how they build those harmonies they're very unique harmonies and they just kind of grab you like that. So that's mm-hmm. my favorite.
3: I need. So listen. I listened to the re- the original release. I need to go back and re-listen to I because I don't know if I know that song that well. I'm sure once it's probably one of those ones, once I hear it, I know mm-hmm. it, but I don't know the, the titles of songs, <laughs> but yeah, now I'm excited. I have another excuse to listen to Fleetwood Mac. There that's you awesome. go. <laughs> what about you, Leah? What's your favorite off this album?
0: I mean the chain, but I'm going to be different for the sake of this conversation. It's a secondhand news. <laughs> That's a good point okay. too. Because I really do love that song. Like Awesome. It's like it's the opening track, I believe. <laughs> I don't have the mm-hmm. track list in front yes. of me, but it's like you're just like, "Yeah. We're going to listen to this banger of an album and then it just totally. keeps hitting and keeps hitting mm-hmm. and keeps hitting." So, it just it's like a really great opening track. I love a good opening track. Yeah.
3: Totally. There's a lot of really good opening tracks in the albums we're going to talk about. There's one album I feel like I mean, it opens with a skit. Not to play our hand too much, but <laughs> most of the albums that we're going to talk about, like you, you, you jump right in and, and get mm-hmm. rolling. It's pretty cool. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Any final thoughts on rumors before we move on?
3: I mean, I know, and uh, I listened to a few of your other uh, five hundred best episodes, and we talk about whether or not it deserves to be in the spot it's in, and. I think we kind of covered it already, but it's like you could make the argument this is the best album ever written. I mean, it's just like it's front to back. It's solid. And it's just all like so many of the songs are just so ubiquitous. Like I feel like it's one of those things where even if you don't know that it's Fleetwood Mac, you'd like you would like you said, Ben, you would listen to this album and be like, oh shit, this song's on this album. This song's on this album. And it just Mm -hmm. keeps going. And it's just like, they're songs you hear in the grocery store or on the radio or by choice because you sought them out or in movies or whatever they're just everywhere and it's just because they're just so damn good and they're it's it really is timeless stuff it's it's yeah. pretty, well, it's, like, it's you just always get blown away that stuff like this exists like how yeah. do people mm-hmm. do this it's mm-hmm. crazy
2: well on the list like it's bookended by two that you guys covered last time "Nevermind" and purple rain and it's right. like, all of these are mm-hmm. perfect albums. Yeah, You know, it's like, I don't like, is Nevermind better than Purple Rain? I don't know. Ask me tomorrow. You know, it's like, I don't know what my right. mood yeah. is. But <laughs> like, the the day.
1: right it, now it I'm like, no, like... Purple
2: Rain's better, you know. But then I've listened to Rumors. And I'm like, well, shit, I don't know. Rumors is pretty fucking awesome. You know, yeah. it's just like, it's hard at this point.
1: It just, it, I think it just has to come down to the editor's preference at that point. Because yeah. the, every yeah. album we've covered, I would argue you really can't find a fault in it. Like kind of what we've been Mm -hmm. talking, you know, to have an album with all greatest hits on it is very rare. And a lot of these albums that we've covered, there's not a sleeping song. There's not a Mm B-side track to them. Um, And I think once you hit that threshold of that just nailing composition, melody, songwriting structure, all those, all the ticks are met. It's just got to come down to preference at that point.
3: -hmm. Totally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agreed.
0: I want a documentary on the team that had to make this list. (laughs) Right? You know, there were some fights in that room. Yeah, for sure. I want to see it. It's (laughs) a reality
5: series. Exactly. Who ended up getting their way?
0: Yes. (laughs) I want like a six hour that. like Beatles documentary cut where they're just like bugging the room. They're like, Can you believe that she chose that as number 23? Like, what an idiot. <laughs> we need
2: to get
5: that down to number 40.
2: Yeah. And just like making deals. Like, fine, we'll put Kid A at 20, but you have to let me have like Ready to Die at 22. All right, fine?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yes. Rolling Stone, if you're listening, release the cut. Really?
1: Release, release the, we need the Rolling it. Stone cut.
3: <laughs>
1: the Rolling Stone cut.
3: <laughs> and it's kind of funny too you think like oh it's this that album came in at number 400 but when you think about how many albums exist like to be the top 500 of what mm-hmm. whatever the number is like it's pretty incredible like to even be on the list and i love lists like this but at the same time i also realize like the fools errand that they are mm-hmm. because i mean mm-hmm. i don't remember the full list but i'm sure there's stuff that i love that's in like the 400s and i'm like
5: yeah i mean have me back higher. on when have me back on when you cover weird al's
2: bad hair day <laughs> oh dude okay
3: we'll fight for that one
1: you have, <laughs> you all <done> a U- <laughs> have you all done a uhf episode yet
2: not yet no but if you guys will come on we'll we'll put it on the book i, will, I will
1: come on for that i haven't I seen it to in UHF. like years so i've never seen a hot dog that's that, that's rules i don't make them up
2: yeah, that's, well, yeah. <laughs> rules are
3: rigid i like it
0: mm-hmm. i've never seen it so you'll you'd get my get ready raw reaction
3: perfect well it fits the criteria of the podcast <laughs> it yep. really Few does. people haven't seen it so that
0: works So good there we go <laughs> all right i think we uh we have covered rumors and all of its entirety you did great matt mm.
3: Thank you. Wonderful. So
0: moving on to number nine, Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks.
3: So I think you guys mentioned earlier or Matt mentioned it. He said he was the only one that was able to pick an album right away. Mm -hmm. And the two of you, Bethann and Leah, knew that I wanted to talk about a Bob Dylan album. Mm -hmm. And you presented me the choices of Highway 61 Revisited and Blood on the Tracks. Um, I couldn't decide because Highway 61 Revisited might be it might be my favorite about al- favorite album of all time. Um, it's either that or blonde on blonde. I can't really decide between the two. And in fact, like you said earlier, mm-hmm. Ben, it's like, depends on the day. Really? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I go through phases. Um, and I do love blood on the tracks. And so the reason I picked it is because I kind of wanted to know more about it. Um, I've listened to it a thousand times, but it's, I've listened to highway 61 revisited 2000 times. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, and i've always well not always from the moment i discovered dylan i became just like an instant fan um i had my during my my sad boy emo days i was a huge bright eyes fan Mm -hmm. and connor oberst got compared he was like oh he's the this generation's bob dylan and so i had Mm -hmm. heard of bob dylan i knew of him for like uh blowing in the wind or whatever like some of those songs that are almost like almost like the birthday song now you know what i mean like they're just like songs that they're almost like nursery rhymes at this point Mm -hmm. um and so anyways i don't know if you guys had this experience but remember ipods (laughs) no (laughs) like back when you used to have ipods and you could go to your friend's house and plug them in and and take their discography from itunes or whatever and have it on your ipod that's how i finally discovered bob dylan i uh um Got blonde on blonde, I think, from a friend. And anyway, since that day, I've been a huge fan, and I um, have just loved. You know, ex- I feel like Dylan's like a bottomless well that can just be explored ad nauseum because he's got so many unreleased bootleg tracks and so many released albums, um, so on and so forth. And um, so, anyways, Blood on the Tracks uh, is the one I chose. Uh, like you said, it's number nine on the list here. Um, And I felt like there was something else I wanted to say before I get into my very well-written, very well-prepared uh, description here. But, oh, I think my favorite thing about Dylan is his peak, his true peak was so long ago. Like when he ruled the world and when he was the king was so long ago that he now feels like almost underground. So mm-hmm. despite like his mm-hmm. huge influence and in, like, the weight he carries and the, the influence he's had on music and pop culture, he still feels like an underground pick. And so when I get to talk about Dylan, it almost surprises me when other people are interested in him or know about him or know his songs, because it almost feels like it's this giant well of music and, and an art that like I get to have just to myself, even though I know that's not true. And so like, even when I was writing this, I wrote it, like with the assumption that people don't know the full history of Dylan. And I don't, I don't know mm-hmm. if the people listening or if the people on this podcast know, but you know, during the sixties, he was the guy, like he was, he was, people were calling him like the musical Messiah. He was the voice of a mm-hmm. generation. He was leading the charge on, uh, you know, social, um, social justice reform and, mm-hmm. and, civil civil rights movements and all that. Like he stood next to Martin Luther King during the, I have a dream speech. Like he he was that prominent in, in, in the culture and those sorts of things. And then he sort of became fed up with that title. He didn't really want it. He, he just, for whatever reason, he just wrote these songs. In fact, there's a really cool documentary uh, made by Martin Scorsese called um, no way home. And you see people talking about Dylan, they would say like, yeah, I, I think it was Joan Baez said I was in the Chelsea Hotel with him and he just sat down at the typewriter and he wrote within a few minutes, he wrote the chimes of freedom flashing, which if you don't know that song, it's an incredible, like just wonderfully poetic, just beautiful, breathtakingly deep song. When you hear it, you're like. How, how could he possibly have written this in 2 minutes and what he said he's like i don't even know how this happens i don't know where this mm-hmm. comes from he's he felt like he was a conduit for something that was being channeled through him it was like pure artistic creation and so he was just this guy that was just cranking this out and he didn't know why he just was doing it that's all he knew how to do and so uh in the late 60s he was in a in a motorcycle accident that kind of took him out of the spotlight for a while and he was really critically injured and he laid low for a while. And then when he made his return, he he was making a conscious effort to push against this title of the voice of his generation and the the, the musical Messiah, as I said. And so Mm -hmm. that kind of leads us into the creation of blood on the tracks. And so I'll actually, uh, Matt, Matt joked earlier, he wasn't sure how long you wanted to go on. You guys are going to have to cut me off because I'm a famous (laughs) rambler. So, (laughs)
4: um,
3: but anyways, Uh, Released on January 20th, 1975, Blood on the Tracks is Dylan's 15th studio album. Uh, Bob is famously, we're on a first name basis, Bob and I, so. Uh, (laughs) Me and Bobby D. (laughs) Me and Bobby D. But Bob's famously coy about the origins and inspirations for the material on the album, but it's uh, mostly believed to be largely about the dissolution of his marriage to model actress Sarah Lowndes. Um, The songs that make up the album were written through the summer of 1974, at which time he and Sarah were estranged from each other, uh, with the couple eventually getting divorced in uh, June of 1977. Um, Dylan said in his 2004 memoir, entitled Chronicles Volume 1, that the songs have nothing to do with his personal life and that they were inspired by the short stories of Anton Anton Chekhov, I don't know how to say that. But um, it's impossible not to connect the dots between the turmoil in his personal life and the subject matter and themes on this album. And even his son, Jacob Dylan, um, he's also a fantastic artist in his own right, has said, when I'm listening to Blood on the Tracks, that's about my parents. Um, And like I said, Mm -hmm. Dylan, Dylan is always been coy and and. Uh, standoffish about explaining his work and and answering questions about what he's done because I, I truly believe he doesn't fully understand himself. I think a lot of times it just kind of comes through him. Um, there are albums and periods of time where I feel like he's making conscious decisions to make, song, to make specific types of music, but when he makes stuff that's transcendent like Blood on the Tracks, it's just kind of like it, he just can't help himself. Um, and I don't want to go into too much more detail about like the history and the sordid affairs of his his relationships that created the album. But I do think it's important to have that frame of reference to know why this album is considered one of the greatest breakup albums of all time, uh, which in honor it shares with uh, rumors by Fleetwood Mac that <laughs> <album> that's. <laughs>
4: um,
3: furthermore, I think it's important to know uh, what inspired Bob to create the album. Uh, and what would sort of simultaneously reinvent himself as an artist and reconnect him to his roots as po- as Rock's uh, Poet Laureate, as it were. Um, I mentioned earlier that Dylan wrote the songs that would eventually make up Blood on the Tracks over the summer of 1974. Um, and it happened after he began to take art classes with an artist named Norman Raven in New York City. Mm. Um, Bob later said in an interv- in, in an interview that, the art lessons that he took caused all the problems in his marriage. Um, he's quoted as saying, I went home after that first day and my wife never did understand me since that day. That's when our marriage started breaking up. She never knew what I was talking about, what I was thinking about, and I couldn't possibly explain it. Mm-hmm. And this kind of leads to what I was saying. Like, I don't think he truly knows what's happening. It's just this, this art is kind of just coming through him.
4: Mm-hmm. And
3: personally, I, i'm not really sure how well this album explains his thoughts and feelings during that time Mm. but i certainly think it represents those thoughts and feelings with incredible clarity um blood on the tracks found its way to number one on the us billboard 200 uh with the intro track tangled up in blue there's those good those killer intro tracks uh making its way such a
0: good intro. Um,
3: it's incredible um and it found its way to number 31 on the billboard charts and I was actually kind of surprised it didn't win any awards, it didn't win any Grammys, it didn't really win it it won it won the court of public opinion over time. Mm-hmm. But during its release it was actually sort of um critically controversial. Like it it did well in the charts, but um in fact Rolling Stone itself gave it a fairly critical review saying it's a good album for now but it's not going to stand the test of time, which
4: it eventually oh, well.
3: wound up at number <laughs> nine on their own list. So, um, but like I mentioned earlier, the albums uh, marked the return of the version of Dylan that his fans have been missing during the early seventies or uh, what I like to call his Nashville skyline period, which is a the, the title of a fantastic album. It's like this like cool country album. He does a duet with Johnny cash on it. Um, it's a very mm-hmm. warm, fun, just like nice album. I think, mm-hmm if i remember when i bought that album it says like it's just an ode to being happy or something like that which i think is true i think this was during a time in his life when he's quoted as saying he just wanted to like live on a country lane with a white picket fence so he was kind of trying to just make music that fit that mode um but uh yeah he he was seen by Many as the sort of, like I said earlier, musical messiah and his work throughout the early 70s, like I said, was a push against these sorts of labels. But the combination of his inner turmoil, along with the perspectives gained from those art classes with Norman Rabin, uh, they proved to be too hard for Dylan to keep bottled up. And thus, Blood on the Tracks was born. Um, As for the actual musical aspects of the album, this was the first album that Dylan self-produced in its entirety. Hmm. Um, this would become more common throughout his career he later assumes the pseudonym of jack frost and he produces a lot of his stuff under that pseudonym um, he produced uh, some classics like time out of mine which is another fantastic album love and theft which uh, is critically acclaimed it's not one of my favorites and uh, modern times which is relatively new came out in the early 2000s if i remember right um, but Time Out of Mind and Modern Times are really good. Time Out of Mind is just phenomenal stuff. It's got some really cool stuff on it. Um, but as for Blood on the Tracks, old Bobby, good old Bob, my guy, Bob, uh, <laughs> he employed like a strange open E tuning and he refused to explain it to anyone. And this includes the musicians <laughs> recording uh... the album. Um, He's notorious for switching keys and timing signatures and lyrics on the fly, whether it's a concert or recording session or whatever. Again, that uh, Scorsese documentary I told you about, you see him recording um, like a Rolling Stone, which is A, the reason they came up with the name Rolling Stone, the magazine, uh, I think. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure. And the band.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Isn't it? That's how the band got their name. Yeah. Oh, shit. Well, See, I don't even know that. It was the Muddy Waters version, yeah. but mm. it's from that song. Gotcha.
3: Gotcha. Um, but even when he recorded that song, there's like a famous organ intro. It's like this, like, re- like thumping, like, throwing organ. Um, organ. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not chord. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, but that was that was just written in the moment by someone who didn't even know how to play the organ. He just wanted to get in on the song and he just jumped in and played it and Bob liked it and they went with it. you so you're in the movie, <laughs> yeah, you're, you did it. You just wrote the the intro to one of the most famous songs of all time. Um, So he's really, he's really known for that, but um, he, he always keeps the people playing the songs on their toes, but with blood on the spec, blood on the tracks specifically uh, he made it super difficult for his bandmates. Um, and to, to to sort of to finish telling that story, I kind of have to tell another story real quick, uh, which is how the album itself changed uh, it. He re-recorded the album at the very last minute. Um, he had a he had the album completely recorded. Uh, it was ready to go. They had the acetate, the test acetate pressed. They had all the marketing materials ready to go. But he played it for his brother during christmas break like he was home for the holidays and his brothers said that the the song sounded too stark um bob really wanted to go with like a more acoustic stripped down feel but his brother said they they weren't accessible they were too stark so he recorded five of the songs which makes up roughly half of the album um during the days after christmas of 1974
1: that band probably hates that brother
3: (laughs) yeah well so it's funny because he got a bunch of local musicians from Minneapolis to come in and record. Um, and, you know, they were all happy to come in. They were playing on a Bob Dylan album and they, they knew the music they were playing was transcendent. So they were happy. Mm-hmm. But um, I actually wasn't even planning on talking about this, but it's worth mentioning. Uh, Dylan didn't credit any of the musicians, whether it was the, the people that Ooh. recorded the original mm-hmm. version or the Minneapolis version. In fact, from what I read, the only one person who I'll talk about him in a minute got His actual brother. credit
5: just kidding Uh, not even his
3: brother (laughs) not even his brother um dylan yeah for whatever reason he did he told them he would and he didn't they didn't you know their names aren't on the liner jacket which is further fucked up because the only grammy that i saw that it won the only award it won was for its liner notes like i guess (laughs) these grammys for liner notes and so it won an award for that for liner notes
2: yeah i didn't know it was a thing so
3: i looked up i looked up because uh, I was like, "How did this not win awards?" So I looked up "Blood on the Tracks" awards, and that was the only one that came up. Was like the Grammy for best album notes or something like that. <laughs> I don't. Know. Huh. I didn't read too much more into it, but anywho, um, where let's see where was it? Uh, so he he re-released this new this new uh, version, and that's the album that we hear today. Footnote um, to that is that original press was widely bootlegged and a lot of people credit Bob and this album for starting like the bootleg culture of music. He was Mm -hmm. like the first big bootleg album. Um, But anyways, uh, I mentioned earlier that Bob didn't make it very easy for the band with one of the original artists, the only one that was credited, uh, his uh, an acoustic multi-instrumentalist named Eric Weisberg. Uh, He's the guy that wrote the dueling banjos for Deliverance. Uh, bing, 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 bing. Oh, that awesome. guy. Interesting. So he's, he's the only one that got credit. And he gave the following account. And I, I'm quoting this directly from Rolling Stone. Weisberg's band grew flummoxed when Dylan not only didn't have charts, but didn't even seem interested in doing a complete run through of songs before the tapes rolled. Quote, <laughs> I got the distinct feeling that Bob wasn't concentrating. Uh, he was He wasn't interested in perfect takes, He'd been drinking a lot of wine and he was a little sloppy, but he insisted on moving forward, getting on to the next song without correcting obvious mistakes. While we were listening to the playback of the first song, Simple Twist of Fate, or the first song they recorded together, Dylan interrupted it to begin teaching them another tune. He couldn't <laughs> have cared less about what we had just done. We were totally confused because he's teaching us a new song with another one playing in the background. And I was just thinking to myself, just remember, Eric. This guy is a genius, and I guess this is how geniuses operate. <laughs> um, furthermore, the session engineer Phil Ramone later said that Dylan transitioned from one song to another as if they were part of a medley. He said, sometimes we'll have several bars, and in the next version, he'll change his mind about how many bars there should be between a verse, or eliminate a verse, or add a chorus when you didn't expect. Basically, Bob was in rare form recording this album, and as, as a result, we get is, we get what is in my opinion a singularly great album. One that doesn't really sound like anything else and completely stands the test of time. It's a timeless classic with an interesting and unique history just like the guy that put it all together.
4: Mm. And, I'm picturing um,
2: him like while they're recording Idiot Wind. He's like, I got another one. It's like, Bob, we're like at seven eh? minutes, man. He's like, no, I got some more ideas. Let's just put it all on <laughs> here. <laughs> like, so I, ended up I was listening actually, to that. I was like, man, he's he's got something to say on this song.
3: After I read, after I read or wrote this out, um, I'd read Um, an account of one of the musicians that played in the re-recordings and they talked idiot wind was the song that Dylan wanted to re-record. And he only anticipated recording that one song. Oh, nice. And so they recorded that song. I think they did an eight takes and they were just having such a good time. They kept going and kept going. They ended up re-recording five songs. Um, Another funny thing about idiot wind is the song only want to be with you by Hootie and the Blowfish. Um, Dylan, And his estate sued Hootie and the Blowfish because I don't know if you know that song very well, but he word for word rips off an entire verse of Wind Mm. and he gives Bob Mm. credit. And he's like saying like, oh, I love Bob Dylan. Listen to these lyrics. But he never asked Dylan for permission. And I guess he used a few other lyrics in that same Mm. song. Um, And so I guess that kind of ended up becoming a signature of Hootie and the Blow or of Darius Rucker. Nice. Because his next big hit was when he covered Wagon Wheel, which is also a Bob Dylan song. <laughs> so
2: um,
3: Hootie loves himself Thanks. some Bobby D. Yeah. Um, there was one more little note I wanted to point out just because I thought it was uh, interesting because we're all from Salt Lake City. The three of us from our podcast. Um, he's he never really plays the same set list when he tours. He, he kind of just like makes it up as he goes along. And there's a few songs that he's never played ever since recording them. Uh, One of them being meet me in the morning or no. Well, yeah. Meet me in the mornings, one of them. And also Lily Rosemary and the Jack of hearts. He only time he's ever played it since he recorded, according to this uh, article I found it on was a a duet with Joan Baez in Salt Lake city in May Mm -hmm. of 1976. Nice. I thought that was kind of cool. That's cool.
2: Um, Shout out Joan.
3: But yeah, that's my very long winded. Uh, history of blood on the tracks and i mean quite honestly there's so much about not only bob dylan but just this album in particular it's kind of like rumors where it's just Mm -hmm. it just was legendary Mm -hmm. i mean he had there's been a few times in his career where he's reinvented himself quite famously um highway 61 revisited was one of them it's he went electric and shocked the world in fact most of his fans disowned him because he was this like acoustic (laughs) beatles
4: <laughs> right. Yeah. And so
3: he went electric uh during a folk festival and people were pissed. And that's actually what the Scorsese documentary deals with. Um yeah. and so then there's this period of his time, and then that other album I mentioned, um, Time Out of Mind, was he was sort of coming out of a, a like a Christian exploration. He was he was getting very mm-hmm. um religious. Nice. And then he comes out of that with Time Out of Mind, and it's just fantastic stuff. So Yeah. Blood on the tracks. Good stuff. Um, I'm so curious to know what you all think of it. Because like I said, I I feel like Dylan's my little thing. And I'm very <laughs> prepared for most people to not like his stuff. Because it can be inaccessible. And I understand mm-hmm. why. So I'm very curious to hear what you guys have to say. So
5: I, I'm surprised that you feel like Dylan's your little thing. Because <laughs> I feel like he's pretty universally beloved. At yeah, least see, it's so funny.
3: Because I hear so much like... A, a lot of people that i talk to either don't know him very well and they're just like yeah he's not my thing i don't like his voice i don't like whatever i can't do his singing i can see and, that. I, and I totally get it mm-hmm. so the, the 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 conversation i usually have with people is like yeah he's great but he's not my thing and so i just mm. i don't get opportunity to talk about it very much so that's yeah mm-hmm.
5: i so my parents attended uh, a Bob Dylan concert when my mom was pregnant with me. So as a fetus, I attended nice. a Bob <laughs> nice. Dylan
0: and a boy nice. concert. You were That's indoctrinated my claim to fame. early. Yes.
5: Yeah. it was so, close to, that, yeah. Thanks. Thanks, so close to that. Yeah, so close
3: to that. Seventy six, Joan Baez duet too. <laughs> <Just a guess laughs> off.
4: Almost there. I know.
5: Oh well. Um, no, the thing is, Bob Dylan. I mean, it's he's got to be one of the most prolific songwriters of all time. So many yeah. hits are, you know, from his own writing uh even even songs that weren't his even though even his versions you know didn't make the charts or didn't get popular like his imprint on music mm-hmm. is just immense like songs yeah. that you had no idea that he wrote or were involved in you know are by him and you know performed by other people but yeah i mean he's got some albums that just I mean, yeah have so many great tracks uh one song particular from this album that i really love is you're gonna make me lonesome when you go
4: mm-hmm. yeah
5: so that that'd be that'd be the one that i'd pull from this one um it's one of there are very few songs that like just listening to if i'm in the right like mood or in the right place like can get me emotional and that's one of them um yeah. and so i gotta shout it out for that uh but i yeah i mean i i really love bob dylan um I I like, I prefer his earlier stuff before his like voice changes so drastically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, his, yeah, as I guess all I can say is just his imprint on music is just undeniable. And
2: I'm a disciple.
4: Well,
2: I'm not, um, (laughs) this was, uh, this was honestly the first Dylan album I've listened to front to back. Um, I think I always held him, uh, in my heart, because Tyler's in my heart, you know, it's like, (laughs) yeah, I know Bob Dylan is like Tyler's dude. Like if someone asked me name three things, you know, like quick, three things about Tyler, like Dylan will definitely be on there. Cause it's like one of the first (laughs) things I remember about you when I met you, you know? So I, he's someone where it's like, I've heard songs, but I've never listened to an album. So this was really fun to listen to front to back Um, I, I listened, honestly, I played tangled up in blue like three times Mm -hmm. before I like kept the rest of the album. I was like, dude, this is awesome. (laughs) This is a great song. I loved it. You know, like, obviously like, man, I'm with you. Like you're going to make me lonesome. It's really good. I obviously shelter from the storm, stuff like that, but tangled up in blue, just like one of the, it was such a great like way to kick off this album. So yeah, his influence is, uh, undeniable. I think like before I had listened to this, I felt like, um, Cancel and Zoolander. Where it's like, I really res- respect Sting. Like I've never listened to him, but I really respect what he does. Like I felt that way about Dylan, you know, it's like, I've never really listened to him. Like I know some of his stuff, but I know like his influence is is huge. I actually had seen the, that Scorsese documentary. And that was my experience with him. Like, Oh, this is the guy that like switched to electric. That's kind of nuts, you know? But uh, yeah, I really enjoyed listening to it. And that, that first song sets it off, you know?
3: Mm-hmm. I think, uh, Sorry, I don't. I said I was excited to hear your conver- your thoughts, and I immediately cut you off. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll shut up.
1: <laughs> no, I think um, you know Dylan. For me, Dylan is. I understand Dylan as a writer. Is it my favorite style? No, but I no. think what's unique about Dylan and the folk scene of the '60s is really how they built their songs. It was very lyric first, and then mm-hmm. let's build around it. At
0: yeah. least
1: that's how I believe it went down, because that's how, when I listen to it, that's what strikes me yeah. first, is there's such an emphasis on crafting the words. And I think that's a really, I, I do like that songwriting style for sure, where you kind of focus on the lyrics really heavily before you move into melody. And I feel like, you know, for so many years, it was kind of the opposite of it where lyrics mm-hmm. are just going to be, I want you, baby, throw the word baby in there, throw love, and <laughs> yeah. you're good. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and Dylan was one of those artists, and Joan Baez as well, that really broke those molds and fr- frontiered that 60s uh, folk. And so I really do appreciate them. Like I said, it's my favorite to listen to. Probably not, but I can really appreciate the craft that's going on there. Um, as far as for this album, while I did not listen to all of it, I do know... a quite a few tracks of it. And yeah, Tangled in Blue is just stellar. It's, I really appreciate a track, like the opening track is so important. And I'll talk more about that in my outline. And he couldn't have chosen a better one. Um, But yeah, that's kind of like my take on Dylan. Like, I can really appreciate where he comes from.
3: Yeah. That's one of the, the things I hear the most is like, in fact, someone told me like, Dylan's a great poet but who the hell told him he could sing <laughs> like, and that's kind of one of my favorite things about him is he's like look like this is just who I am and what I do and this yeah. is what I sound like and yeah. my work is transcendent enough that like you're gonna have to deal with it and you know mm. uh, other people other people can take my stuff and you, like Adele one of her biggest hits was um was a Dylan cover. Mm.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I forget
3: the name of it right now. Make you feel oh, my to love. To make you feel my love. Yeah. That was my I uh, mean he's just
1: that's what me and Josh danced to at our wedding. That oh, that that's awesome. so beautiful. Mm-hmm. I love
3: that. So cool. Um yeah, it's just he just is <coughs> unap- unapologetically himself and uh he just keeps he just has such a well of 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 stuff <laughs> to pull. <from. laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, he is. <laughs>
0: We uh, are dying to hear your thoughts. Yeah. So I was not exposed to Dylan, like, at all growing up. Like, the first time I ever listened to Bob Dylan was back in the fall. I started working through this list, like, independently on my own before we started this series. And I think Highway 61 Revisited is ranked a couple higher. Mm-hmm. So listen to that one first. And I was like, I don't love it. I don't hate it. It's there. I listen to it. And I distinctly remember I was mopping my floors in my old house getting it ready to move out and just to show and i started listening to this while i was mopping and i heard tangled up in blue and i was like holy shit what what is this song and i, yeah. I did the same thing where i played it like three times in a row i was like do i have to listen to the rest of the album like i could listen yeah. to this a couple more times um yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and i just was i just was vibing i've never mopped more efficiently in my life because <laughs> I, was just, <laughs> I was in the zone uh, that's awesome I really like this album a lot. I've come back to it a couple of times since that very first listen, just because it's a vibe.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely a vibe. And so we've all sang the praise of tangled up in blue and rightfully so. And Dylan himself, I think I read he's played that song live, like 1400 times or something like that. It's like I'm one sure. of his Please. most often covered songs. And I think, um, you know, when I was thinking about this album and my favorite songs and why they were my favorite songs and why he wrote these songs tangled up in blue feels to me like that moment it's been a while since i've been through a breakup but there's always a moment when you've you're finally over it and you can kind of look back at it it this feels like Mm -hmm. the first morning that you're over your breakup and Mm -hmm. you're kind of looking Mm looking back on it like i mean the first thing he says like wondering if her hair is still red like enough time has gone by that he can think think about her in the way that you would think about you know a, a, a favorite city you've been to or yeah like i wonder if that i wonder if that bar is still open or i wonder if that restaurant's still around or whatever it's like you can think about it in a way that's like not necessarily lovingly but um what's the word i'm thinking of this is so for listeners of this podcast that don't know our podcast my my trademark is i forget words or i say words confidently that i don't actually know the meaning of that's the better (laughs) one (laughs)
5: sometimes i spend 45 minutes (laughs) trying to figure out what we're we're just ben and i are just guessing which word he's thinking of we do the same thing on my
1: podcast
3: (laughs) but yeah like you're finally to a point where you can look back fondly you can have um a little bit of i still can't think of the word what's the word uh, that's the one nostalgia you can nice. finally feel nostalgic about it and like you feel good about it you're going through the you're going through the history of it in your head and it all feels in the past and you can finally move on and like that that there's few there's few songs that can come out of the gate like this and just make you feel that like that just make you feel all of those things and i mean it's hard for tangled up in blue not to be my favorite song on this album um mm-hmm. i actually like meet me in the morning i was surprised to hear that it was one of the ones that people dislike um, I feel like a sort mm. of like a nice breath of uh, like kind of like a moment to breathe. Like we just went through idiot wind. Like Bob is seething. He's breathing yeah. fire in that. It's mm-hmm. like one of his trademarks. He's got a, some really cool, really good, like fuck you songs. And idiot wind is like, mm-hmm. I think the most brash of those um, positively four street is another great one. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I could probably go on forever. Um, I think this easily, it could be a top 10 album. I mean, uh, there's a lot of Dylan albums that I personally think could be a top 10 album. So sure, let let Blood on the Tracks be top hmm. 10. That's that's fine with me. Um, and yeah, Shelter from the Storm and Tangled Up in Blue, probably my favorite two off the album. And they're mm-hmm. just transcendent stuff from my boy Bob.
2: Well, I think and it I says like something that the only artists on here more in the top 40 is the Beatles. Yeah, like they I mean, have five albums, then Dylan has three on here, which is like... Mm-hmm. kind of nuts that's awesome though mm-hmm. but yeah i was gonna ask if like because it's like blood on the tracks is nine highway 61 is 18 and blonde on blonde mm-hmm. is 38 but would you put blood on the tracks is like the best dylan album like objectively
3: mm. i mean i guess i think blood on the tracks is the most singular i don't think there's anything else that sounds like it and i think you could say the same thing about a lot of these albums especially rumors yeah. um i i don't think there's many there. there's nothing out there that sounds like this album and so for that alone I, I, like highway 61 and blonde on blonde were recorded close enough together that they almost could just be two sides of the same album you know
4: mm-hmm.
3: so there's mm-hmm. not enough singularity i guess if you want to get uh nitpicky about it so i i guess yeah technically blood on the tracks is probably the best of the three but I think I've listened to the other two more, but that's not to say I haven't listened to tangled up in blue, you know, 500 times. <laughs> yeah,
5: yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to shout out, uh, I already mentioned you're going to make me lonesome when you go, but I wanted to shout Miley Cyrus's cover of that song is it's really did. awesome.
4: Yeah. Mm.
3: Let's check that out. Apparently another, another cool cover uh, talking about meet me in the morning. The only time Dylan's played it live since he recorded it was with, uh, Jack white in Nashville. Uh, It's one of Jack White's favorite songs. And so he played at the Ryman Auditorium. You can't find video of it. Believe me, I tried. (laughs) Um, I thought, I think it was recorded before camera phones were ubiquitous enough to for someone Mm -hmm. to poach a recording. See,
0: uh. iPhone culture is good for something. We document (laughs) everything Mm -hmm. now. Mm
4: -hmm. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) That's right.
1: (laughs) Very true. And also a very random shout out. But there is this indie game called The Artful Escape. And it's kind of based off of bob dylan um <laughs> hmm. the character that's kind of it takes place in this town and this musician came from this town they have a day honoring him and all that but that musician is kind of based off of bob dylan definitely his songwriting style definitely in the voice so that, that is cool. an amazing game um definitely really oh, brings you through the experience of like Songwriting and all the kind of stuff. So that's worth checking out as well. Nice. Damn,
4: that's
0: you cool. sure it wasn't John Mellencamp Day?
1: <laughs> it was not John Mellencamp Day. No. <laughs> we
0: learned that exists. Yes. <laughs> the Cougar. In, 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 in preparation, preparation of all for places. a new, <laughs> new episode. Yeah,
2: I was the Cougar now in the top 10. Come on.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned for a future episode of Sheila <laughs> Raphu. Very tuned. soon. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler <week>. alert. <laughs> Um, I guess that means it's my turn. It's number fourteen, "Exile on Main Street" by the Rolling Stones. Um, I feel like everyone else in this episode chose their album because of like a very personal reason. I chose mine because it's a complete shit show. <laughs> 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 I'm gonna tell you, why. <laughs> I can't wait. Uh, so one thing I think that makes it different from ev- almost probably every other album on the list, so all 499 others is I think this is ranked as high as it is, not because of the musicality on the album, but because of the circumstances under which it was made. Mm. Because by all logical standpoints, this album should not have worked out and should never have seen the light of day. Mm. I love it. So Exile on Main Street is the 10th British but 12th American studio album by the Rolling Stones. I don't really know how that worked. They just didn't release some stuff in the UK, I guess. Um, but it's released on May 26, 1972. And here's the story of how we got there. The year is 1971. The Rolling Stones owe the government of the United Kingdom a lot of money. <laughs> they have not paid their taxes in several years. Hell yeah. They, <laughs> At the time, the UK was imposing... Because they're one of the com- the country's top earners because, you know, superstar megaband. Yeah, um, totally. They're being taxed 93% of what they made which feels hella Jeez. illegal <laughs> I don't wow. know how they're allowed to do that um, it's it had something to do with the labor party and how it was set up at that time and because they were making so much money and a lot of it was you know international earnings I'm not going to pretend to understand tax code it's not relevant yeah, man.
1: <laughs> tax the rich <laughs> I'm all about it
0: So the band, the band was like we're not paying that. So they fucked off to France. Nice. They they kind of like weren't hanging out to begin with. They were kind of like exiled in their own little corners of France. Mick Jagger just got married to his new bride, Bianca. They're living in Paris. Keith Richards and his girlfriend rented this villa in Nelcote. I think that's how it's pronounced. So Google Translate told me it mm-hmm. was pronounced. It's very close to Nice. Um... And they, the others just kind of settled randomly in south of France. And they were like, you know, while we're here, we should record something. That'd be pretty cool. We don't have nothing else to do because we're not paying taxes. Yeah. Um, and they, they start trying to find a studio. But, I mean, France is not known for the recording studios. So they can't find one that fits their needs and their drug habits. So they were like, let's record in Keith's basement. So they recorded Great in idea. Keith's basement. Oh, yeah. <laughs> of um, they also found a van and made it into a mobile recording studio they end up not using it a lot they do use it some for this album but like it's mostly Keith's basement but they're tax exiles and they're all on drugs at this point so this makes recording the album super hard um, <laughs> not everyone shows up to recording even though like Keith has to go literally down a flight of stairs he misses half the recording sessions like <laughs> he's too stoned to show up to his own basement party I love it <laughs> uh, their bassist Bill Wyman was quoted saying like for our previous two albums we worked really well together we listened to our producer Jimmy Miller but at the, the villa things were very different and it took me a while to understand why well, the why was drugs? <laughs> because Keith That'll Richards, at the time, is going through thousands of pounds worth of heroin each week. Jeez, boy. but he's he's not doing this alone. He's inviting like, did you his say buddies. Thousands Lennon, of
3: pounds, like, like currency.
0: Thousands of dollars worth.
3: Oh, I was like, holy shit, Keith. Like,
0: <laughs> I knew, uh, he's I knew using his the drug money, use was legendary, sh-
3: but good hell.
0: I mean, bring in the truck. It probably was physical pounds as yes. well. Like for sure. Um, I'll, I'll tell a story in a minute of like how stoned he was all the time. <laughs> um, but he's not doing this alone. I mean, obviously the band is there too, which fun fact, Keith, uh, Mick Jagger refused to do heroin with Keith. He was like, nah, I learned my lesson. We're not going down that path again. <laughs> Jesus. Um, but they're hanging out with John Lennon, Yoko Ono, Eric Clapton, a bunch of other like jazz musicians I've never heard of. Anyone who's passing through France is hitting up the Rolling Stones mansion. <laughs> uh, at this point.
4: Why wouldn't you? Yeah,
3: that's the place to
0: be. <laughs> they know where to go for the party. Yeah. Um, so like I said, Keith is too stoned to come down to his own basement to these recording sessions. Um, Mick Jagger's missing it for personal reasons. I don't know what they are. Um, and bassist Bill Wyman also missed a bunch of sessions. So for a lot of the takes, they just find random friends who were in the studio and be like, you're playing bass on this song. Go. Um, which you can kind of tell when you listen to it, the album is very not cohesive. Yeah. And it's like the opposite of rumors. Like they weren't all in the same room and they were not vibing together. And so it's a very like disjointed sound. Um, they they ended up laying just the basic tracks in France. They go to LA for the overdubs. Uh, this takes like three and a half months because, again, everyone can't show up to the studio for the overdubs. <laughs> Charlie Watts ends up missing like a whole session. He's the drummer. He's really important. Um, so they just like... Gotta, have him.
2: gotta do it. Find a jazz mm-hmm.
0: musician friend to fill in. Um, it's also... It's just pure chaos. Um, so... I was going to include some stories about these songs, thinking they would have good stories, and they did not. They were basically like, they were stoned and they wrote this song. So instead, (laughs) we're going to just cover some fun facts about this album. Nice. So this is the album, despite being, you know, pure chaos, it saved the Rolling Stones. Uh, Mick Jagger says that he doesn't think the band would have lasted if they weren't forced to leave England as tax exiles. They were living a quote, ho hum existence before becoming tax exiles. (laughs) Oh, but. And this shook up their lives enough to make them interesting again.
3: (laughs) Poor guys. Um, (laughs) It was so bad.
0: The villa that they're recording in, that Keith and Anita bought or rented, they rented, Mm -hmm. was the headquarters of the local Gestapo during the World War II (laughs) occupation of France. Nice. Nice. When they moved in, the floor was still decorated with swastikas. Whoa. They covered them okay. up, obviously, because That's good. Yeah. He may be stoned, but he, he was did stone, one thing he... right.
5: <laughs> yeah. Exactly. He's stoned, but he's not dumb. <laughs> yeah. Man's got principles.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, so like I said, they record all this in the basement. And basements are not known for their like water tightness. And they added this, like, I don't even understand how this works, but they made a literal labyrinth in the basement out of, like, partitions to try to soundproof different areas so they could record mm-hmm. different tracks without, like, bleeding into each other. Mm-hmm. You're not supposed to record in your basement, guys. This is why. <laughs> but also, in the summer in France, it gets very, very, very humid, and the guitars would go out of tune almost instantly. So they spent, like more time tuning the guitars each session than actually playing because it's so wet down there. Mm -hmm. Because of this, they gave the album the working title, Tropical Disease. (laughs) 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 So not only did they not want to pay taxes, they didn't want to pay for electricity while they were in France. So they tapped into the government grid and stole electricity to power the studio. How are they that smart to do that? (laughs) So I would like to know. know.
5: Time travelers. They bro- I love it. I <laughs> Make guess. it
0: work. I mean, someone is doing the technician work, like hooking all this yeah. these amps and stuff up. Yeah. Like they know how to tap electricity. <laughs> they they stole it from the French railway that ran like right behind the villa. I don't know how this worked, but they just like tapped in and stole enough electricity to power the amps and the mobile recording studio. Man. Like I mentioned, Keith was really high all the time um, and pretty much spent a lot of time unconscious. One time, he almost ended up killing everybody because he fell asleep in his bed with a lit cigarette fell on the mattress. He just happened Jeez. to wake up and see that his mattress was on fire oh. and they put it out before everyone died. Da- like, it, it would have been really bad if he hadn't woken up like right then.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh. I How many lives these- does this guy have?
2: I was gonna say there's so many reasons that these band members shouldn't be alive still. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's crazy.
3: The Rolling Stones are a
2: miracle. I do not
0: understand.
2: I, don't I do not it.
0: understand how Keith Richards is still alive. I, I literally I'm don't.
2: imagining
5: the house uh, or that building in that vagrant building in my own private Idaho as being where they're recording totally. this yes. album. Yeah, exactly. I'm
0: thinking exactly <laughs> what exact
4: it, it
5: is.
0: <laughs> With swastikas, don't <laughs> yeah. 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 Right. So I mentioned that like the writing process was very scattered. And I mean that literally. Like when they wrote Casino Boogie, Mick Jagger literally wrote phrases, like random phrases on pieces of paper, threw them in a bowl, picked them out, and that was the order that the lyrics were written in.
3: I love that. It's <laughs> so good.
0: That's one way to do it.
3: Yeah. It's the literal exact opposite of what Beth Ann was talking about with Dylan. It's Correct. Like, yeah, words, <laughs> yes. The words don't matter. Like, it's just we're about just the five. put them
0: here? together. <laughs> it sounds cool. It's, that's all that matters. Yeah. Um, and so I mentioned they, they like finished the overdubs and the final processes in L.A. And the way that Mick Jagger decided to test one of these demos for All Down the Line was he gave it to a local radio DJ, told him to play it at a certain time, and sat in his car to listen to it so he could hear what it sounded like on car speakers. because That's important, though. You can't pop though. a CD in your car. <laughs> that's no,
1: that's, that's important be- because whenever you're mixing music... Your car speakers will have your best mix.
0: So yeah, but you can't like how else are they gonna play it in the car? It's nineteen seventy-two. Yeah. No, that's, that's
1: true. They don't quite have a ox cord, do they? <laughs> yeah. We no. do not.
3: It's also a really great scene in genial. a really great movie called Once, if you've never seen it. One? It's about I haven't. it's called Once. It's about um an Irish singer-songwriter. Um, he's actually a real musician named Glenn Hansard.
1: Um, oh, okay. And it's about
3: it's like a Fictional retelling of his actual story, and he plays oh, his cool. own. He plays himself, and yeah. they have a scene where they record an album, and then they take a, a road trip, and it's like a montage scene of them mm-hmm. listening to the album. It's really great stuff. Highly recommend. It. I think you both would like it a lot. Oh,
1: cool! I'll check it out. Let's yeah. check
0: it out. Yeah. Um. So, this album gets released in 1972. It's met with very mixed reviews because it's very, it's very disjointed. It's very hmm. not. It's their, like, last attempt at, quote, American rock and roll, because the the Stones are very blues-influenced and very American-influenced to the British band, and this is, like, their last shebang before they were like, maybe this isn't cool anymore and we should try something else. Mm -hmm. But it did go number one, like, almost immediately. It was a huge commercial success. Um, They celebrated this with, like, the infamous 1972 American tour. Um, It's aged better, I think, than critics thought it would, like... People kind of hated it at first, but obviously it's number 14 on the 500 Greatest Albums of All Time list. Um, and Rolling Stone very quickly changed their tune by the late 1970s. And they're like, actually, this is the Rolling Stones' Greatest Album. Um And depending on the day, it's one of Mick Jagger's favorite albums. Like in some interviews, he's like, that's the best album we've ever written. And then (laughs) in some interviews, he's like, he says, this is from a 2003 interview. He said, Exile's not one of my favorite albums, although I think it does have a particular feeling. I'm not too sure how great the songs are, but put together, it's a nice piece. (laughs) However, when I. (laughs) When I listen to Exile, it's some of the worst mixes I've ever heard. Hmm. I'd love to remix the record, not just because of the vocals. But I just think it sounds really lousy.
2: <laughs> That's funny. So awesome.
0: Um, so I think that it's one of those albums that like musically it's it's fine. It's a Rolling Stones album. It's nothing completely groundbreaking like Rumors or or any of the other top ten but the circumstances are so ridiculous and so how does this exist that mm. it's it's infamous in the story behind it and not the story that it's telling because it's, it's words in a jar at some points. Um, to jump to the, does it deserve the spot in the 500? I actually, for the very first time, I'm saying no. I think Sticky yeah. Fingers should have taken this spot and been ranked a little higher than Exile. But... Thanks don't send me hate mail people listen to
2: this (laughs) send it to matt all the hate mail goes to matt so yeah
3: all hate mail (laughs) to the intern threefilmspod.com um (laughs) i've never been too much of a stones guy like i like them um but i've i've i mean i've heard a, a bunch of their songs um so i i wouldn't be able to say like which album of theirs should take this album's place but uh this is like a an album you hear a lot about like it's legendary right and Mm -hmm. i didn't know any of that backstory so that was super interesting to hear and it after hearing about it it makes sense like this album was an achievement in all those ways but i i listened to this this is the only album besides um blood on the tracks that i listened to multiple times to prepare for this episode and i was Mm -hmm. just kind of like i kind of don't get it because i know one of the questions (laughs) Mm -hmm. that we talk about is what is your favorite song and i was like i don't have one i like the album like don't get me wrong i like this album but i'm just like i like the album for what it is for the experience of the mm-hmm. album i kind of it feels like what it would feel like to be at a bar and there's like some like <laughs> jaunty like blues bands playing bar rock in the background mm-hmm. you know what i mean mm-hmm. and i actually kind of mean that as a compliment because it's fun like you like, yeah, I, the whole time I'm kind of like moving and, and like, you know, bobbing my head and stuff. But like, there's no singular track that jumps out to me. And so, I mean, I can understand like the influence that it may have had. But for me personally, I don't totally attach to the album, but it's a fun listen. And after hearing mm-hmm. your explanation, like mm-hmm. the way that it sounds makes a lot of sense. Like that disjointed, like bar band sound makes a ton of sense when you know the history. And so I think that's yeah. all really cool. But for me, I'm just like, does it deserve to be what, what number is this? 13 or something like that? 18 14. or whatever? Where I'm like, I guess, sure. I don't know. The Rolling Stones are incredible. Like they're an influential band. This one of their song. One of their albums has to be on this list somewhere and it has mm-hmm. to be high, but like, is it this, I don't know enough about the stones to really know, but um, I was actually underwhelmed just given its position on this list for my mm-hmm. first listen. I'm like, does it is it that good like does it deserve 14 I'm really not totally sure
0: I think that's a fair reaction <laughs> yeah I,
5: I consider mm. myself something of a stones guy I'm not like a diehard by any means but i I would probably rank you know three other albums ahead of this one for sure um so I, I definitely agree with with the two of you that this doesn't hold up where Rolling Stone has it I will say yeah. my favorite song from the album, is thanks to the movie Knives Out, it's got one of the best, you know, roll-to-credit scenes, in my opinion, of all time, Mm -hmm. playing Sweet Virginia. Mm. And uh, that scene actually kind of makes the song for me. I don't think that song ever jumped out to me, um, or the album for that matter. And I, I remember when that song played on that credits, I'm like, this is, like, awesome and perfect. And I looked at the song to see what album it was on. It's like, oh, Exile. And so I listened to Exile, and yeah, not my favorite album and uh but i mean there's there's some there's some really cool songs there like i also like shine a light i think shine a light's a cool song Mm -hmm. um but yeah i mean if if i'm to put on an album that has like you know three or four songs that i just like love Exile's not going to be one of them
3: yeah actually something what you just said there i like you wouldn't put the song to listen to a few songs but i think this song this album is a really good like party album. Like if you have a bunch of people together and you just need something in the background, like I think this is an excellent choice because mm, mm-hmm. they're, they're the whole song, kind, of, the whole album just kind of feels like a party, which makes sense because they were partying super hard when they made it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and <laughs> i, I really do pounds mean, of heroin. <laughs> <laughs> I do mean <laughs> that as a compliment. Like it's a fun album, but I just don't know. For me personally, I don't know if it's as great as it's purported to be, but I, I mean, I don't know. That's just me.
2: Um,
0: it's I, basically the stones. Oh, no, please go. I'll say it's, it's basically them just being a jam band in totally. his basement. And they're good at it.
3: They're good at it. Like, <laughs> don't get me wrong, but I don't know.
2: Yeah. I'm, I'm with Matt or I think there's some other albums, honestly, like probably the three before this that I would pick, you know, Baker's Banquet and let it bleed and sticky fingers. Um, I yeah. worked out at the airport for a while And there was an older dude there through talking about music. He realized I'd never listened to like, again, I listened to like the 40 licks or whatever their greatest hits. He's like, what's your favorite album? I was like, I just told you it's 40 licks. Like that's that's their best album, you know? And he almost looked offended, you know? So he's like, Oh, I'm going to burn you CDs. Like, I want you to listen. Like he was just doing all this kind of stuff. Um, and, and I enjoyed it all. And then you telling the story again, it's like, Oh, this is what he was yelling at me over the airplane noise. Like this was the story he was telling me by Hugs out because he was just like they were in France and like, okay, cool. You know, it's like you're at the back of a plane, just like you can't it's, hear anything. I'm like, all right, buddy, yeah, you it's got the, it. You it's know the yeah. meme
5: of that guy whispering into the girl's ear at the party Yes, exactly. Yeah. He was like open right He's like, Yeah.
2: Like thousands of pounds of hair. Like, okay, cool. Awesome. <laughs> you know, so it was cool to hear that story, uh, in, you know, the comfort of a room and not at an airport. But um yeah i mean i i think tyler's point is right like i i didn't like noticeably dislike it i just like it's what i i wouldn't pick this you know to to put on um but i yeah tumbling dice would probably be my my track off here that i like the most
3: am i correct in assuming who that old person at the airport was
2: you might be. Um, it's funny looking back on it now, because in my mind, he's like mid 60s, but he's also like so sunburnt that he could have been like 40. Like, I don't know exactly. <laughs> I was like, you know, early 20s at the time. Like, I don't know who this old guy is, but um, yeah, it was uh, in, in the bag. You probably know who it is.
3: Yeah. <clears throat> ben and I met at the airport. That's the genesis oh, nice. of our
2: yeah, beautiful that's
3: like relationship.
1: <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. So for this album, did I listen to it? No. And that's because... (laughs) Are you missing out? I forgot. No. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I've heard most of the other albums. So I consider this a win in my book. But yeah, I think, you know, as far as for like a synopsis of Rolling Stones, they did, you know, they had some like really interesting eras that I don't think it highlighted as much because I think we kind of had that core Rolling Stones sound in our head. And just to see them like build a random ass album because they're in exile it's just it's good comedy it's it's just funny it's Mm -hmm. just funny so i can appreciate (laughs) Mm -hmm. the goofiness of the album without listening to it but i appreciate where it's coming from it's probably a you know uncohesive gobbledygook mess but besides all that i can appreciate it
0: words in a jar
1: Mm -hmm. nice words in a jar (laughs)
0: I will say it's it's a thing that ever since this album came out, bands have tried to duplicate they'll rent a house and live as a band for, you Mm -hmm. know, months on end with some some party drugs. Why are they trying to duplicate it? It never turns out that good.
1: We all agreed it wasn't a good album. So why (laughs) what's there to duplicate? (laughs) It's number fourteen. Come on. (laughs) That was that that, so someone at Rolling Stone got their pick, I'm just saying. Someone sold something big. Yeah.
4: <laughs> Big um, trade
1: off.
0: <laughs> the three of you probably don't know, but my favorite band is The Struts, and they made a lockdown album like, at the very beginning. Uh, the, the very beginning of quarantine, they all like hold up in a producer's house, did an album in 10 days. And when that album dropped, it immediately got compared to Exile on Main Street. They're like, oh, this is the modern day Exile on Main Street. And we're like, but oh. with less drugs, like yeah, there was a yeah. plan. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. There are a lot less drugs in this one.
0: Yeah, some <laughs> drugs, but yeah, some obviously. Not well, there's got to be some. <laughs> no one set the house on fire, to the best of my knowledge. Very you That's go. good. That's a win
2: all the way around. Um, all right. Is it up to me now?
1: Up to yes.
0: You. On that note, we'll move to number nineteen, Kendrick Lamar's "To Pimp a Butterfly."
1: I'm, I'm so excited for this one.
2: Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm gonna I'm gonna channel that as much as I can because I'm like. I'm very excited to talk about this. I'm also like nervous because I feel like this is like such a kind of a big album. I was having a hard time choosing. Um, you know, you sent our options. My first the first thing that grabbed me was Biggie Ready to Die. Cause I was like, any debut album that comes out with Juicy and Big Papa, it's just mm-hmm. like that that's still getting played today. It's crazy. Like it's such it is such a good album. But I kept coming back to to pimp a butterfly because I I just knew it was like such an important album. It's a great album. I love Kendrick. Um, it's not my favorite Kendrick album. I love Good Kid, Mad City. That's probably my favorite. Um, but I've probably listened to this 20 times since I picked it because I was just like, <laughs> I just wanna like, I wanna have it. You know what I mean? And it's it's so good. It's I feel like there's a reason that it is, it's the second newest album in the top 50 um, and top 100 behind oh, wow. Beyonce's Lemonade. And they're just like a year apart, 2015 and 2016. So mm-hmm. I feel like that also kind of speaks to like how it's been received, you know. I mean, to have whatever it's like seven years old and it's or I guess at this point it was five years old and I already made it onto the list. And obviously lemonade is a lock. Um mm. Beyonce got snubbed. I love Adele, but I mean lemonade got snubbed. What can I say? It did. It
0: really it did. did.
2: It really did. I mean, even Adele's like, no, this is this is yours. <laughs> this isn't for me.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, but yeah, uh this yeah followed a uh, good kid mad city um which then was followed by damn and the black panther soundtrack so i mean the run he has honestly like section 80 and you know mr morale like he's got it's a pretty solid discography that he has for being so young and i think it's a uh, pretty cool that this album made it onto the list um it was released march 15th 2015 first fun fact that was an accident <laughs> i guess it was supposed to come out on a. Uh, March 23rd, but Interscope like screwed up, like the digital oh, release cool. of it and put in the dates wrong. So all of a sudden it came out like eight days before they thought it was. And That's so then like Interscope. on the 16th, they're like, uh, okay, let's just put it everywhere then. So it's, it's like, Oh, it's a good sign. I think that accidentally mm-hmm. gets put out, but um, uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm glad that that happened. Uh, I just want to talk about some of the people that worked on this album. Like it's huge. Kendrick is fantastic, obviously. And I I think it just speaks to him, like all the people that came on to work on this album after Good Kid, Um, you know, like Pharrell Williams, Flying Lotus, obviously like Dr. Dre kind of like executive produced the whole thing along with um, Top Dog, guest appearances from one of my favorites, Thundercat, Um, Mm -hmm. George Clinton was on here, Snoop Dogg, Rhapsody, like he worked with the Isley brothers, like got them on it too, which was kind of rad. Um, I guess he worked with Prince, but they didn't get enough time together to like finish a song for the album. Mm. I'm very curious what that would have been like, but, um, yeah, first week release debuted at number one in the UK, Australia and United States, uh, which is kind of nuts. I mean, I don't know much about the numbers anymore, but it did like 324,000 in the first week. So I imagine that's pretty solid if it did number one, you know, like all over the place. Um, the more my speed is that it had a 9.6 million streams the first day on Spotify, which is at that point had set the first day streaming record. So that's, yeah, kind of crazy, but I guess that's the, that's the times we're in now. It's the, what's the Spotify numbers. (laughs) Tell me, tell me how many people streamed. How many YouTube views does
3: that have?
2: Exactly. (laughs) Um, So it was ranked 16th most popular album um, by billboard 200 that year. And it had like a million copies worldwide. I think it was received really well. Metacritic gave it a 96 out of 100 which is wow. pretty pretty solid, you know. Um and then there was even some that were like ranking the albums of the decade. Uh, the Independent put it in first place, Consequence put it in second, Rolling Stone put it in third and Pitchfork in fourth. So it it held up, you know, over the decade, which I think mm-hmm. was pretty pretty awesome. Um yeah, as far as like the the concept of it like a lot of it happened. I guess the idea came to him after he had um he had visited Africa and he went to like Nelson Mandela's. um Sorry, I'm trying to figure out exactly what it was, but um he went to visit Africa. I think I have to cut this out. Sorry, oh, you <laughs> lost my spot. The <laughs> okay. um, yeah, so yeah, he went to South Africa and he visited like Nelson Mandela's jail cell on Robben Island, and I guess he got so much influence there that he scrapped he said two to three albums worth of material because he just wanted to do something different Hmm. Uh, one of the quotes he gave said "Um, I feel like I belonged in Africa I saw all the things that I wasn't taught probably one of the hardest things to do is put together a concept of how beautiful a place can be and tell a person this while they're still in the ghettos of Compton so I Mm -hmm. wanted to put that experience to music so that was kind of like the idea behind it and I think he did a, a really good job like It's called To Pimp a Butterfly. Um, The original title was To Pimp a Caterpillar, which uh, the acronym together would have put together Tupac, which uh, he comes up a little bit later on. But uh, he decided to do butterfly because he just honestly, he just said like, it sounded cooler next to each other. I just thought like, I like the word (laughs) pimp and the word butterfly in the same sentence. So. He's like, they're going to be talking about this in college courses for years. I'm like, you're, you're not wrong. Like, it's a really cool <laughs> like juxtaposition of the two words. But, you know, it kind of tells the story um, in a sense of like, you know, a caterpillar and um, you know then the cocoon that it kind of gets like held up in, like just being, there's a song called Institutionalized, just like you're kind of stuck where you mm-hmm. are and you've got to like develop yourself and grow yourself so that you can like become the butterfly and I thought that was just really kind of interesting. Um, one of my favorite reviews on here um, called him the street poet of mental health because he covers a lot of
1: yeah, no kidding. Talks about
2: depression and self doubt and stuff on here, which is cool. I think maybe that's why like I related to it. You know, it's like yeah, this is awesome because I don't think especially like there's not a lot of rap artists who are talking about mental health and depression and all that kind of stuff. So I thought that was kind of rad to do that. Um, some of the tracks on here, like you is a lot about like self doubt and almost feeling like, um, like imposter syndrome, something like that. Um, and then later on at the end of the album, he does, I, which is all about like self love. And it's just like, it's just really cool to see how it develops like throughout the whole album. So, um, yeah, I think this is like super important. It got seven nominations from the Grammys, uh, won best rap album and was nominated for album of the year. He also had uh, four additional nominations for collaborations that year. So he had 11, which was the most nominations any rapper had in a single night, I guess in history. So, wow. Wow. Yeah. I think that's, I don't know, pretty huge. Um, one of the reviews I liked talked about the album changing music and that we're seeing the side effects of it. So the album meant that intellectually stimulating music doesn't have to be underground and that Mm -hmm. it didn't just change the music. It changed the audience. And mm-hmm. I thought that was like like a really powerful way to talk about the album where it's just like, it doesn't have to be like what people would assume traditional rap is, you know? Um, you, you can talk mm-hmm. about some of the internal struggles and stuff, but it's interesting because some of the the tracks that get like picked apart by media, like one of them even gets like talked about in Damn. It's like an intro to a song. I think it's like Geraldo Rivera or whatever. Mm-hmm. He's like, uh, like we want to kill the, Kill a popo, like kill him in the streets, fo show whatever, and it's like yeah, but like you really like cherry picking what this is all right, about. You know, I think like yeah, yeah it's right. just like let's just do this one thing. Like oh, this guy wants to kill cops. Like that's not what the whole thing is about. Like there's a lot bigger picture here. So um, yeah, so I, I just enjoyed his like I don't know the the self discovery and putting that into an album and just like what the trip to Africa did for him to realize like oh I've only experienced this one thing, but like there's so many other things that you can experience. And I mean, honestly, like a, a personal thing, I think we, a lot of us probably feel this way, but it's like you learn so much from traveling. You get to kind of mm-hmm. see what, what other people experience and stuff like that. And I just, I, I love that that trip really kind of influences like, okay, let's scrap everything I want to start over because there's just so much that's touched me here. So um, there is a B-side album that came out after this called Untitled Unmastered. And they were all just like the B-sides that got cut. Um, But he put it out as an album later on, which is like a a wonderful album as well. If you haven't heard it, like I I highly recommend it. But Thundercast said that it like completes the sentence of the whole album. And I was like, I think that's really an interesting way to look at that. So um, yeah, I don't know. Solid, solid album. It ends with a song called um, Mortal Man, where he talks about like trying to be better, but still being human. You know, he's like, if I mess up, like, are you still going to be a fan? Like, you know, people aren't perfect forever. So I think that message is great, but then it goes into um this poem that we kind of hear throughout the whole album. And he just has like a couple lines at the beginning. And then the next, like he'll do, you know, lines one through four, and then one through six until the end we hear the whole poem, which is just like really beautiful. And it gets talking about like the the butterfly and the caterpillar and how they're completely different, but, they're one and the same and that's like how we all like grow as people and stuff like that. So I feel like I'm really hitting that home by just like, I think it's what I love so much about this is like someone took the time, I guess, to like make, make a, a hip hop album about self-reflection and growth and stuff, which is something that wasn't traditionally tied into the genre. And I think that's like a huge reason why it's here. So, um, but at the end of that, at the end of the album, he has like an interview with Tupac And it had kind of, they cut together footage from a 1994 interview that Tupac did and Kendrick like asked him questions and they used that old, the old audio, the old footage. And it's amazing to think that it's like in 94, cause he was asking him like, I don't know, just like about the the repression and the police brutality. And like this album kind of became a symbol or like one of the, um, uh, one of the uh, outlets had called it like the the new, like uh, black national anthem, like the whole album, just because mm-hmm. like it spoke to the people and everything that was going on. And it became a huge part of the black lives matter movement. But in the interview, he, he asked Tupac, like, what's going to happen, you know? And Tupac answers in 94. he's like, I think people are tired of grabbing shit out of the stores. And that the next time there's a riot, there's going to be bloodshed. And it's just mm-hmm. crazy to think that that was like 30 years ago that we were still like experiencing this stuff. And to hear him talk about that, and just that like Tupac goes on to talk about like, there's like five years that a black man can exhibit maximum strength. And it's like, when you still wanna fight, when you still wanna lift weights, all that kind of stuff. But once you hit 30, they take your heart and soul out of it. And they just assume you're gonna like roll over and take whatever they give you. And I think that hits so much harder because Tupac died at 25, you know, it's just mm-hmm. like, he didn't even get a chance to make it to 30. So I don't know, I, I love this album. I wanted to talk about it. I'm glad I got to. Um, I think it's a really important album. Like I said, I I think Good Kid Mad City is still my favorite, but I can see why this one is where it is on the list. I think it deserves to be up there for sure. I really enjoy how like such a new album made it onto the list. Um, Again, I think that kind of speaks to how well it was made. So um, yeah, I don't know. I would just like encourage everyone that hasn't listened to it to at least like check it out once because I think there's a really cool storytelling aspect and kendrick does that quite a bit that's another reason i love the good kid mad city album but um as far as the influence this one (laughs) kind of caught me off guard i guess bowie listened to it a ton while he was making black star Hmm, um his producer said that they were listening to a lot of kendrick lamar we love the fact that kendrick was so open-minded and he didn't do a straight-up hip-hop record he threw everything on there and that's exactly what we wanted to do i was like oh that's That's kind of rad that you know someone like bowie's like open to it you know it's just like yeah i want to see What else is out there? Like someone who's always like challenging their musical styles and tastes and stuff like that. So I thought that was pretty awesome. Um, I'm curious to hear if there were songs that you guys loved in particular. Like I have a few I want to talk about, but did you guys have any that really just like stuck out to you on that first listen?
1: So um, before I get to that, yeah, I have to say Kendrick is someone I have been really, really listening to lately, especially Mm -hmm. because Mr. Morale just came out and yeah, sure. before I listened to Kendrick on and off, um, especially around Black Panther and that whole album came out, but and when Damn came out, but it wasn't until the Super Bowl when they did the whole, um, oh yeah, Dr. Dre like every mm-hmm. song was in there was produced by Dr. Dre that it really hit. I was like. Because I heard all right. I'm like, what is this song? Is this new? Mm. And they're like, no, it's from Tupimba Butterfly from 2015. <laughs> and so I have been just delving into Kendrick. And I think Mr. Morale, I have to just give the biggest shout out because that album I feel like is a spiritual sister to mm. the messaging of mental health behind yeah. Topimba Butterfly. And it's just so well the way he executes his thoughts and the way he structures it, like the tones he puts behind it, like the different random piano parts that are played in it, um, how he just attacks certain issues. It, it, it's it's just so well-made. I, I can't speak enough. But anyway, let's get to the Butterfly. My favorite song off this track is All Right, and I think mm-hmm. it's solely because it's how I heard it first, and I was so mm-hmm. deeply impacted by the Super Bowl... Um, uh, show, um, Uh, and I think, I don't know if this was covered in the show or where I heard it from, but Kendrick was in Compton one day and Tupac and Dr. Dre was filming on his street. And hmm. like years later, he would go to work with Dr. Dre. And I just think Hmm. the legacy that's in that alone is just really impactful, um, And I think all right really brings that message full circle basically about how the world fucked us over, but if God Mm -hmm. got us, then we're going to be all right. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just, it recognizes the harsh um, realities that uh, black people face in America while also saying, but we're going to be okay because we always pull it through. And I just think that's really powerful.
2: I think that's, I mean, a clear... You know reason why it became kind of the anthem during the protest for black lives matter because the whole messaging of it is that exact thing you know like some of the the lyrics in there just talking about how like one of my favorite lyrics like like what mac 11 boom with the bass down like it, it just talking about like the police brutality and stuff but how it gets like covered up and so no one like notices mm-hmm. it like all that stuff that's mm-hmm. happening and i think it's just so interesting the way he's able to put that in the lyrics but then like his, you know, the the faith that he has in God and stuff like that for him is like, that's kind of what like keeps him moving. And I think that's cool. Like I'm not a super religious person myself, but I respect people who are, and like, that's what drives them. That's what moves them. Like, that's cool. I get like, I I really appreciate that. And there's a lot of like religious stuff in all of his lyrics throughout the album. You know, you hear someone referred to as Lucy and it's like Lucifer will be, he'll be playing like both sides. Like, so it's just kind of, kind of interesting, but yeah, all right. was definitely one of the biggest tracks for sure. I don't know if anyone wants okay. to talk about another one. Uh, I'll keep going. Yeah.
5: <laughs> no, so this, I'm I'm late to the Kendrick party. Uh, by the way, I'm going to tell them myself here. The the first, my first experience with Kendrick Lamar was he was featured on a Lonely Island song, um, Yolo, <laughs> with uh, the Maroon I Five. The Maroon yeah. Five guy. Anyway, his his I part was be, awesome, yeah. and uh, I, I for whatever reason like. I don't know if it was just like the snobbery of my age at the time, but like after like 2008, like I wasn't really like delving into like any new hip hop. I was mm-hmm. just like consuming what I had already consumed over the last, you know, 20 years. But um, I, <clears throat> over the last several years, like I've, I've been trying to, you know, correct that, especially with Kendrick. Cause he's, he's made such a, such a big impact on the, on the, you know, contemporary hip hop music scene. And yeah. so, um and his albums you know as, as ben has been stated like are super important to that community um and to the times they're very like <clears throat> timely and so um I've, I've delved through his discography and i i haven't done like a deep dive i think like ben the way that you consumed it the way you said it, where you've just like kind of been listening to this i feel like that's probably the best way to consume his albums because mm-hmm. you know they've got a message there he's he's putting together something that's designed you know he's he's designing this experience and so yeah. um that's probably the appropriate way to do it uh, i did not do that with any of his albums really but i've had you know tracks here and there on on several playlists of mine from this album in particular like i feel bad saying this because i, I can't like think of what songs these are i'm sure I, they're i've heard several of these the mm-hmm. one that stands out uh, just from the musicality standpoint of it was king kunta yeah. Um, and now, like in the context of sort of the the narrative that he's telling on this album makes like total sense at the beginning of this album with this trip to Africa, with the influence of, you know, the the miniseries roots um, that he's kind of, um, you know, going off of or, or playing off of. Um, I think that's that I, I doubt that's my favorite song on this album, uh, but just as far as something that's very unique and something that stood out to me on one of my listen throughs. I'll just shout that song out.
3: Yeah. um, You and I share a lot of the same uh, viewpoints there. King Kunt is my favorite song on the album. Um, What's the name of his new album? I forget. Uh, Uh,
1: Mr. Morale and the Big uh,
3: Stepper. That's right. So my girlfriend and I have been listening to that album quite a bit. And I was talking to her about this. I, I feel like I'm on. I feel like the way that I described most people's relationship with Dylan that I end up talking to is almost my relationship with Kendrick. Mm-hmm. Like I fully hesitate to say, I, I hesitate to say I fully understand what he's doing, but for whatever reason, his music just doesn't always fully connect with me. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that there's not songs that I love. Like I love um, his album, damn and specifically mm-hmm. the song DNA on that album like that song yeah. dna like, like the the music of it the flow of it the the way like his specific flow the way that he you know says the words and everything that hits me and that like i can connect with that but there's a lot of his music that for whatever reason i can't find that connection and i just feel like uh disjointed and i feel disconnected from it and i can't i can't get into it it's really weird like i, I feel like uh It's almost listening to someone speaking a language that I don't fully understand. Mm. You know what I mean? And I, yeah, Mm -hmm. but it's like I can hear the words and I can understand the craftsmanship and the masterful way in which he can put the words together. And when I listen to this album specifically, I can respect it as a full work of art and a full piece of music. But the only song that I really, get that connection to that really gets me going that i feel like i can that i feel like i'm on the same ride with i feel like i'm on the boat with everyone is king kunta that's the only one that really kind of you know gets my head head moving like work like all right definitely does that for me as well but on this album specifically it's king kunta and every time i try to listen to a kendrick album because i i so desperately want to be cool like everyone else and and think like like oh Kendrick's the guy, and I really think he is. I just for whatever reason, there's something about the way that he raps, and there's something about the way that he puts together his flows and his that doesn't always connect with me. And I I mm-hmm. love hip hop. Like I grew up with hip hop, um, and especially West Coast hip hop. Like you know Dr. Dre and all, and Snoop Dogg, and even more uh, like slightly underground groups like Jurassic Five. Like I really love like the head bobbing, like like flowing. I guess more easily accessible hip hop. I'm not really too sure, but there's something about Kendrick that I just like, I can't always connect with. And it always bums me out. I'm like, I feel like (laughs) I'm not a part of the club. Everyone's so much Mm. cooler than me. But
1: I mean, they're, they're completely do two different rhyming schemes too. And two different flows. So like nineties West coast, you know, there was a, a rhythm that it all followed Totally. And whereas yeah. there's been a lot of migration in today's hip hop, they're using a lot of triplets. So it's like da, 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 right. da, 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 da. So it just completely changes right. how, how many words you can get in there, the flow of it, the song structure. Yeah. Sorry, but I, didn't I think, mean to interrupt you.
3: No, no. I mean, you're spot on. And there's a lot of times, I mean, maybe that's it. Maybe I'm just more of a, a four, four, like, I'm wearing a War on Drugs T-shirt here. That's my favorite band, and they're very like, it's very four-four, straight up classic rock. And you know, like maybe I just Mm -hmm. need, maybe I I just need a more simple rhyming scheme, a more simple like beat pattern. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not totally sure, um, but I always just feel so left out because I I do think Kendrick's a genius. Like when you read his, just read his lyrics. Mm-hmm. there's obviously a poetry to it, and the things he's talking about and the the ideas that he's getting out to the world are incredible. and they're very important, especially in the context that you put, Ben. Like there's not a lot of hip hop artists, especially when this was made, that are dealing with the things that he's talking about. or like there's not a lot of voices in the black community that are talking about these things. And now there's yeah. a lot more athletes mm-hmm. coming out talking about these things, and there's there's hip-hop artists and there's other artists and musicians and whatever that are talking about this stuff. But at the time, it sort of seemed novel and revolutionary and I think it's incredibly important and beautiful but I'm just like but I don't always love the music as <laughs> the music yeah but I can't yeah, appreciate I it. it for the the art that it is and um, if, if I had to pick a song and I do <laughs> I would say King Kunta like you Matt <laughs> is the one that for whatever reason I can find the groove in it and I can I can I feel like I can understand it the best nice so
0: Well, if you're not in the club, I'm not even on the island because <laughs> hip hop is probably like the weakest genre that I have knowledge of. Like, it's just not something I gravitate to. This is yeah. I listened to this album once. It's the only Kendrick album I've ever listened to. Like, it's just not something I seek out. Yeah, um, yeah. But I have immense respect for it when I listen to it. It's sure. Just, yeah. Mm-hmm. If I'm putting in my earbuds, like that's that's not what I'm going to be listening to, to be honest. Um. But listening to this album for the first time, I was like, okay, I can see why, like, everyone's talking about Kendrick. Because mm-hmm. I think when I listened to this, it was, it was the, for the first time. It was a little while ago, like, when they had announced the new album and, like, oh, yeah. Kendrick Hype was building mm-hmm. back up. And I was like, okay, I get why this is this is as high as it is. Like, it is incredible writing, incredible lyricism, like, super thought-provoking. I, even, I, had, I was looking at the track list while you were talking, and I had liked... All Right, which I never like tracks on the first time Mm -hmm. for a listen unless They're like, shake me to the core type songs. And I, All Right did that. So, like, he definitely, I get why people like him. He's just not someone that I'm sitting there listening Mm -hmm. to.
2: For sure. Well, All Right music video, I highly recommend. It's awesome. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I just like Kunta, I'm with you guys. King Kunta is great. Uh, He had a quote about It just said that it's the story of struggle and standing up for what you believe in no matter how many barriers you got to break down, no matter how many escape routes you got to run to tell the truth. And I thought that was just like a super cool, like synopsis of what mm-hmm. that song is all about. That's cool. Um, and the last one I just want to shout out uh, real quick actually is uh, Obama's favorite track from 2015. It's called how much a dollar cost. Um, and you know, it's kind of the story about him pumping gas homeless guy comes up, asks for money. He says, no, he thinks he's going to waste it. And then it turns out it was like, God, that was talking to him. He's like, how much does a dollar cost? He's like, if you're greed and you're not willing to like share, you know, and like take care of people like that will keep you out of heaven. And I mm-hmm. thought that was like, that's a really, like, again, just like these big things, you know, that people talk about, like, there's so many, you know, acceptance speeches, like, I want to thank God, whatever. But it's like, I don't have how many people actually like rapping about what it takes to be a good person and that kind of a thing. Right. So, um, and then on the same album, you know, Kendrick ca- calls out Obama. Cause he's like, Obama say what to do. Cause he's like, yeah, he's like, being black but he's also like still a politician you know like he's like mm-hmm. trying to reach out to people but he's still just a politician i just think like it's cool that you know he's like not afraid just like call out
1: yeah
2: whoever you know but that mm-hmm. like that person can still respect the message they're sending yeah. so for me yeah. like i said good kid mad city is still my favorite album so whenever you guys get to number 115 i'm gonna lock it in right now i'm, I'm coming back um, but I understand, like objectively, why this is like the better album and why it's mm-hmm. up so high. So I'm I'm a huge fan of it. I'm stoked that it's up here. I think, like I said, it belongs there with Lemonade. You know, it's like two of the mm-hmm. newest albums in the top fifty. So I'm I'm stoked to see it here.
3: Awesome.
0: They should have given Lemonade uh, Exile's spot in the top. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> that's I <agree>. swapped it out. <laughs> Thirty-two
1: <laughs> is too low. That's just a mm-hmm. masterpiece masterpiece yeah, it's so good all right i guess it's me huh closing it out It is
0: you number 25 carol king's tapestry well like
1: i was telling ben uh before we all got on here i'm a cheater because i keep choosing artists i've already covered and <laughs> to cut down the work a little bit on this so but same though <laughs> but you know yeah, totally. It just means i have taste works more, uh, not harder. exactly i know the artists to choose i know how to pick them um so just like the other two times if you've listened to our carol king episode you're gonna hear some of the same damn things and i am sorry uh, but let's go ahead and just jump right into the general background of this album and before we actually dive into the album itself we need to set up the scene a little bit here um, because this album comes at a crossroads for Carol a few years prior, she was married to Jerry Goffin and he was her songwriting partner and they wrote like a lot of songs together. Just to give you like a short list, you make me feel like a natural woman by Aretha Franklin. They wrote that together and shout out. If you want goosebumps, go to YouTube and watch Aretha Franklin's, um, she sings at uh, Carol King's Kennedy Center honoree celebration. Oh. oh, oh my gosh. It is just incredible. Um, and then she wrote. Also, George Lucas is there. And George Lucas oh, yeah. is there. Um, <laughs> yes. Chains, not the uh, Fleetwood Mac version, but the one that was covered by the Beatles. And The Locomotion, which was at every awkward elementary school function. Um. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only way I know how to describe it when they try to make you do square dancing to random songs very key memory in my head with that song <laughs> but after six years together I believe they split and this is when Carol in her life one learned what it was like to be alone in her adult life because Prior to that, she was married at 17 and uh, had a kid shortly after that. And so she's moving from New York to L.A. with her two daughters and, you know, just has this like moment to be like, what does this life alone look like? And then two, this is also a moment where she gets to actually write her own words as a songwriter. Um, While she was in a duo and she had a part of it, it's really something special when it's just you are the one writing everything and running the ship of it. Um, But luckily, uh, like every incredible songwriter, you either reflect and go crazy or you make magic. And she Mm -hmm. made magic. Um, As far as for the cultural impact of this And I am starting with cultural impact only because I'm going to hold the songs off for a little bit, but we got to talk about the accolades. When this album came out, it sold 25 million copies worldwide, which is making it one of the best selling albums of all time. And of course she scooped up four Grammys, including album of the year, but this is where the impact shows. So. It went on the charts, was number one on Billboard 200 for 15 weeks straight. And then it stayed on the Billboard 200 for 318 weeks. Wow.
3: (laughs) Wow! That's from
1: 1971 to 2011. So a whopping 40 fucking years. This album is on the charts. Amazing. That was the first 18 years of my life. (laughs) <laughs> right,
3: it's correct,
1: correct, um, and then you know, as icing on the cake, it's also been inducted into the National Recording Registry. Um, anything deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically important. And there was a ju- jukebox musical on Broadway. I think it's still on there um, about Carol King. But let me move into favorite songs because I did choose to. Um, I'm going to actually go with the one I wrote later. Um, so one song I, I want to highlight is You've Got a Friend. And depending on which household you grew up in, you were either heard this song by Carole King or you heard it by James Taylor first. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard the James Taylor version first. Same. And <laughs> to my surprise, it was um, written by Carole and was first on her album. And further, these songs were released six months apart from each other. Wow. Mm. So, how did that happen? Because that's quite a fast turnaround. Yeah. Yeah. What's really cool about. Oh, God. No, I was just going to say it's funny
3: you said that because uh, while you were talking, I was like looking up which one came first. I'm like, did James write it or did she write it? And so I literally read that right before you said it. So it's like, I don't know. I don't know how. Yeah, it's it's that's very strange. I don't know how so that So this
1: is how it came to be. Um, so she's in LA and I don't know if, I think she developed these friendships when she got out to LA, but Carol King, James Taylor and Joni Mitchell were all friends and they actually helped each other out on all their album endeavors. And in the album Tapestry, joni mitchell and james taylor are credited as background musicians throughout the whole album
2: it's a dream so, blunt rotation right there. yeah for, you they should have just right. did a super group
1: like songwriting super group it would have yeah. just been they really should have incredible like that would be the number one on this chart like everyone could go home if that album existed mm-hmm. um but i'm sure some other timeline has it but After hearing the song, James Taylor asked if he could do a cover. She gave her blessing. Um, Don't ask me which version is better because I like them both equally. You get one version with piano. You get one version with guitar. She's your medium. Uh, The next song I want to highlight is I Feel the Earth Move, which is a great opening track. Mm -hmm. Yes. So good. as we've talked on this show, just like the power of an opening track, I feel like I often find myself like creating this list in my head of like albums with great opening tracks because that opening, you just learn so much about what this album's going to be just off mm-hmm. that one track alone. It just, it's a great setup for the experience you're about to go on. But I miss something about like something is not lining up for me because As I was researching this song, AKA wiki. (laughs) So these, these writers of the seventies were writing these reviews and the one word that kept coming up for this song is erotic. And Mm. I don't understand why, because like I've read the lyrics, they're fine, but nowhere does it read let's get kinky. So I don't really know why, but here's the quotes. Um, Quote, probably the most sexually aggressive song on the Tapestry album, the the ultimate hippie chick eroticism, and sounds like the unleashing of an entire generation of soft-spoken girls, collective libidos. Like, (laughs) I really don't understand. Like, maybe there's like an innuendo with Earth, but like, why is it going under her feet? I don't understand. Yeah. I, I if just any don't of you get listeners
5: it. know? Please write in. Let us yeah, know. Yeah, please let yeah. us <laughs> <laughs> If you
1: know, because I'm very confused because it does not read like that to me. Um, but anyway, I just lost my page. Where did it go?
0: Here I it would is. pay money to hear those reviewers review WAP. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the modern day, true?
2: I feel the earth move.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. They wouldn't well, find the eroticism in it.
5: they'd be like oh this is a good commentary on (laughs) (laughs) this This is a great commentary
1: commentary. on the female anatomy Uh (laughs) so do i think it deserves to be in the 500 i mean you could argue uh like you could just argue the fact that it stayed on the charts that long it's just an indicator of its worthiness obviously the public loved it critics apparently loved it especially the first opening track for whatever (laughs) reasons. Um, But as we were kind of talking through to uh, our albums on this episode, it's just very rare when you get an album where each song is just a hit. And, you know, I think those albums where there's no B-sides and For her, like, each of these songs has had their time in the sun. Like, almost every single song off those albums have been on radio plays, have been in TV movie scores, have been in covers. And when you get these albums that just, like, tick those boxes, like I was saying, lyrics, melody, composition, they just deserve to be in the 500. There's just no way around it. Yeah. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: And what are your favorite songs?
3: Gosh, man. So this album... I didn't know anything about it. I was like, oh, Tapestry, Carol King. I like to be honest, I don't know that I'd ever even heard the name Carol King. And I listened really? to it on a Yeah, I just I'm I'm trying to think. Like I don't I wasn't familiar with her. Hmm. But as I was listening to the album, I was like, oh, I love this song. Oh, I know this song. Mm-hmm. I love this song. Um, especially the the first three. My favorite of the three being It's Too Late. Uh I've always yeah. loved that song. I had no idea who sang it um i didn't know anything about her or whatever and so the fact that you i was really excited to hear the history behind the album and the fact that it sat on the num- the charts for that long like is shocking not i guess not shocking once i heard the album because it's top mm-hmm. to bottom right um mm-hmm. i actually as i was listening to it wh- one of my favorite artists is jim croce and i was like oh she's kind of like especially Smackwater jack i wanted to f- like shout out that song specifically i'm like oh that's like female jim Croce. like i was like she's sort of like the other side of this coin uh she has that same sort of like um warm quality that i find in in a lot of jim croci stuff but um yeah i was like okay yeah this i can this song or this album definitely deserves its spot i mean i might even argue it deserved to be higher because every song was just, it was like, there's there's not a weak point on yeah. the entire album. I guess for me personally, my least favorite, I, we're, I, we haven't talked about least favorite songs this whole episode, but I thought it was interesting that my least favorite was the title track. I didn't like the song Tapestry very much, uh, but maybe that's just because the rest of the songs are such bangers that that one just is like, it seems sort of average to me. But yeah, I was very glad to have been introduced and to Carol King to be properly introduced the carol king because i was very familiar with i think over half the album i knew most of the songs but i just didn't know who it was mm-hmm. so it was a great experience to go through it and uh yeah i, I might even argue she deserves to be higher just based on uh, what you told me about her being oh on the i think charts for she so deserves long. to and,
1: be higher 100%. yeah 100
2: percent. well it's funny you say that about jim X-S2. croce because i often describe him to people as the male carol king so it's a interesting connection there you know it's like this is like the male Carole King. Um, no, like I had heard of Carol King before, but um, full disclosure, I want to preface this by saying I was totally wrong to have this feeling. But when I saw you pick Tapestry, I was like, oh man, all right, this is going to be like, I got to listen to it, whatever. I'll get through it. But then I put it on. I was like, holy shit. Like there are so yeah. many good songs on here. Like I just, I had no relationship to it at all. Um, you know, like again, like my, I knew some of these songs, um, but you know, to kind of just like show how whatever limited experience I have with some of this stuff, I was like, it's too late. was playing. And I was like, Oh, I don't know if you guys have ever listened to girl talk, but he, like samples, like, you know, like musicians, like Fleetwood Mac, Carol King, all this kind of stuff and puts hip hop lyrics over it. And I'm listening to it's too late, and I'm like, Oh, this is where girl talk got that sample from, <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, fucking Carol King. It's like, that was my connection to it. But Man, I love this album so much. It was so good. Like, obviously, you know, you make me feel like a natural woman. Like, I don't know who doesn't like, or hasn't like heard of that song or heard that song, but it's too late. It was so good. Um, So far away, obviously is awesome. But um, I'd probably go like, "Will you love me tomorrow. That one, that one for me Mm. is probably like my favorite off of, off of this album. But again, it's like, it's kind of a rumors thing where it's just like, put one on, you know, I'll be like, yeah, let's listen to it. That's great. You know, like, I love it.
5: Yeah, my experience with, I don't think I've listened to Tapestry, like the album Top to Bottom, um, looking at it. And uh, my experience with Carole King is pretty limited as well. I, I was familiar with her in the sense that I knew she was a prolific writer, similar to Bob Dylan. Like her fingerprints are all over the place on other people's music. And the most—the song I'm most familiar with is <clears throat> Will You Love Me Tomorrow, uh, which was huge because um, the version done by the Shirelles, it was the first like song by an all black women group to top the charts at number one, Mm -hmm. uh, which is pretty cool. Um, It also sort of changed songwriting because Mm -hmm. up until that point, like the song is, you know, it's, it's kind of the, uh, the woman's perspective of like a one night stand, uh, which is, you know, somewhat provocative for the time period that it Mm -hmm. came out. And uh, it like, it was almost like, Oh, we can, we can write about stuff like this. Like we can change the perspective on things um, it, it sort of like flipped flipped uh i guess the narrative in mm-hmm. in the way those songs uh were i guess consumed so super yeah. cool song that'd be my pick from the album
0: i learned tonight that i am a slut for a good opening track So i, have awesome <laughs> <pick>. uh, <laughs> I feel the earth move <laughs> It's just, there was a time, there was actually a time where I was making a playlist for an all women's half that I was running, and I asked for like female empowerment songs. And I think you actually, I think I put it in, yeah. I feel the earth move. And it like, you wouldn't think that Carol King would have songs that you could run to, but that is one of them. Like, you, mm-hmm. you throw that on, and you're like, I can, I can do this. I can do anything. Like, we're going to move and shake the earth today, guys. Nice. Um, mm-hmm. It's a fantastic song. So good. It's a fantastic mm-hmm. album. It is, well, really is. I just
3: was like, I could picture people throughout the 70s and apparently through the 2000s. Like, This is one that you could comfortably put on a record player and you know you don't have to worry. You know you don't have to sit through that that one song. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Nowadays we're lucky we can just skip, but there was a time not too long ago that my parents will tell you all about where you had to just, you know, suffer through your least favorite songs. And this is one of the rare, rare times where it's like, yeah, it doesn't really matter. You can, you can set it and forget it. You're, you don't have to, you know, quote, suffer through anything. <laughs> yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. For sure.
3: Yeah. I was blown I away that, by this album, to be honest.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it still holds up. It still totally. really holds up. It's interesting. Cause like,
3: we talked about like rumors obviously we talked about rumors and like blood on the tracks and i would consider those to be like timeless albums and i felt Mm -hmm. like this album was very time stamped like it very much sounds Mm -hmm. like the time in which it was made but it's just so transcendent that that doesn't matter like right you you know exactly when this was made it feels like the 70s it has that like 70s vinyl warmth to it but it just doesn't matter because it's just so good and uh very Mm -hmm. grateful that you introduced me to
1: it that's what this show's about (laughs)
3: indeed do
2: you like it it. at 25 or would you move it up or down oh
1: i would move it up i i think it needs to be in that top 20 maybe even the top 15 i I think it it got robbed a little bit
0: i think as we we get further (laughs) down Yeah, I can take exile spot. <laughs> and as we get further down, we're going to start saying more and more like, this is ranked too low. This is ranked too low. Because the yeah. first 10, you're like, this makes sense. But yeah. you get in the 20s, the hundreds, like someone had to be there. But yeah, exactly. they're still good. <laughs> Here we go. Release the Rolling Stone cut. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, this has been such a good conversation I think I was joking about it being two hours when we started but it's been two hours it's been two hours so we
3: are easily
1: thank you for listening you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you like this show special thanks to Death of Fawn for our intro riff you can visit our website at shewillrockyou.com there you'll find links to our social the show notes and a place where you can contact us Other than that, don't do drugs.